Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is October 22nd, 2019, starting at 4.43 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 227th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the origins of the house division debate and how exactly there came to be so many different forms of house division in the Western astrological tradition today, basically by tracing this issue back to its earliest uh, starting point in the Western tradition as far as we can go back in terms of textual sources. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it. This is a lecture. This is most of the podcast episodes are usually more like discussions, but this is actually one of the rare episodes where I'm going to give more of a lecture and a presentation. And this is actually based on some presentations that I've already given at conferences over the course of the past few years. So the title of the talk is The Origins of the House Division Debate. As we all know, as modern astrologers in late 20th and early 21st century astrology, there's many different forms of house division today. And one of the questions that astrologers sometimes have but don't really know how to answer is, how did this come to be the case? How did we end up with you know, dozens, at least one if not two dozen different forms of house division, all of which are saying that are sort of like vying for people's attention and are saying that they are the best system to use for dividing up a chart into the 12 sectors or into the 12 houses. So one of the things that I would say is that we can actually understand not just this issue but many issues by going back and studying the origins of Western astrology, by basically going as far back in the Western tradition as you can based on studying the surviving texts of the Western tradition, you can actually come to understand some of these issues and come to understand some of the debates uh, that are things that astrologers have been wrestling with for centuries. And sometimes by going back to the roots of these debates, you can understand the issue much better and have a fresh perspective uh, with which to, to sort of attempt to resolve the issue and, and to approach it from. So we're going to go back to the roots. Um, we're going to try to answer some questions that people have, like which forms of house division or which systems of house division were used in antiquity. Other questions like, were there some approaches to house division that were more popular than others has become a debate in the astrological community recently. And that's one question that I want to address and answer in the first half of this lecture. Additionally, one of the questions that we might have as modern astrologers is, how did ancient astrologers reconcile some of the different approaches to house division in ancient times? And can that give us any pointers about perhaps how to reconcile different systems with each other today? So this is um, this whole topic is results basically in a series of recent debates about house division that have been going on over the course of the past few years. Um, it all started in November of 2015 in one of the episodes of the Astrology Podcast where I put out or released an episode uh, on whole sign houses where I titled it something like Whole Sign Houses, The Best System of House Division, where I was trying to basically make the case for whole sign houses. And I was doing it in kind of like a over-the-top, somewhat flamboyant manner, even though most of the arguments that I made I would still stand by today and were still essentially correct. Uh, but this uh, episode that I put out in November of 2015 got some pushback, and there were some proponents of quadrant house division that got 
angry with me and said, you know, that's not correct and tried to call me out about different either conceptual or technical or historical arguments I was making about house division and its origins. And to be fair, the lecture that I did put out was kind of a blow-off lecture. It was originally just a lecture I gave for uh, Adam Ellenboss's school where he asked me to give a lecture on wholesale houses and why anybody would use that approach to house division. And so I threw together some quick lecture relatively um, fast and didn't think much of it and decided to release it as a podcast episode a, a week or two later. So it wasn't exactly the most like formal presentation or careful historical argument that I could make. I still stand by a lot of it today, but the purpose of this lecture is actually to go back and present what um, otherwise, if I was trying to be more careful, what a more formal and thorough treatment of the house division issue actually is, at least in terms of talking about talking about it from a historical perspective and explaining how the issue came about in ancient astrology and what different forms of house division were used in the Hellenistic astrological tradition. So after I put that episode out, um, one of the next podcast episodes in episode 54 of the Astrology Podcast was a debate with Deborah Holding, where she came on and we had a long argument about this issue and especially about the historical origins of some of the different forms of house division and where we debated different things like um, how prominent or how uh, much whole sign houses was the predominant form of house division versus whether quadrant houses or equal houses were the predominant forms of house division. Uh, so that was really the start of this sort of series of debates in November of 2015 in that episode of the Astrology Podcast. Several months later, uh, Robert Schmidt, who is one of the leading researchers in Hellenistic astrology, he put out an audio recording, which was kind of like a workshop in June of 2016, and he was explicitly responding to the debate that he heard between Deborah Holding and myself back the previous November, and then he was putting forth his own sort of take on the issue and take on what happened in the Hellenistic astrological tradition. And this represented to some extent a new direction and a revision of some of his previous arguments about house division that he had put out starting in the 1990s when uh, he was involved in putting out and publishing translations through Project Hindsight of some of the Hellenistic astrological texts. So that was the second turning point in this sort of sequence of debates. And then finally, um, I had to sort of that summer was in the process of writing my book, Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune. And initially, I just had a small treatment of house division at the end of the chapter on uh, houses in my book on Hellenistic astrology, somewhere around the middle. And it was just a brief sort of treatment or overview of some of the issues with the subject in the Hellenistic tradition and, and how the debate got started. But as a result of the debate with Deborah Holding, and then subsequently with Schmidt putting out his new arguments in his house division lecture in June of 2016, I had to spend the summer uh, writing a much larger and much more extended and detailed treatment of the house division issue that represented essentially my final word on the subject, at least up to that point. And that became chapter 11 of my book, which was released in February of 2017, titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. So those are like the three 
important defining turning points that happened as far as I was concerned uh, in those three turning points in this debate that was recent about house division. And what was one of the things that was interesting that I noticed at the time in retrospect um, back in 2016 is that the uh, debate with Deborah Holding actually occurred right around the same time that there was an exact Saturn-Neptune square uh, in the sky. And then what was weird is several months later when Robert Schmidt put out his house division workshop, that was the right around the time that the second exact Saturn-Neptune square occurred in the sky. And then a few months later that summer, right around the time of the third exact Saturn-Neptune square, I actually completed essentially the chapter of my book on house division where I put forward my theory about how all of this came together. So I only note that because I thought that was always interesting from an astrological and maybe a symbolic or a philosophical standpoint and might give us some insight into from an astrological standpoint what this house division issue is really all about and some of the things that it entails where sometimes people are trying to draw hard and fast boundaries between things that are difficult or sort of not very concrete. Uh, and that's a pretty broad way of sort of referring to the issue of house cusps and where to where to draw the line between these different uh, divisions in the 12 signs of the zodiac and the 12 houses. So I wanted to mention that because there might be something about the house division issue that is almost inherently like a Saturn-Neptune or has a Saturn-Neptune type signature and it might be hard to pin down for different reasons. And actually, we're going to get into some of those reasons in this lecture and some of the things that make this issue murky. Um, but I suspect based on that and based on the fact that those three important turning points in this debate happened around the time of the Saturn-Neptune uh, square, that that sort of signature might go back further in history. And it may be that some of the earlier developments with house division also occurred under Saturn-Neptune alignments. Uh, but it's sort of something interesting to just keep in mind as you're trying to deal with this issue yourself to realize that it's an issue where you're trying to pull, there's a pull or a tension or a contrast between two different extremes in terms of um, what's going on in reality and what astrologers are trying to define and pin down. And sometimes what they're trying to define and pin down is very hard. So as a result of those three developments, um, I actually gave a lecture on this topic where I tried to summarize that chapter of my book, which ended up being a very long and perhaps overly detailed, like 50 plus page treatment of the house division issue right in the middle of my book. And because it was still an ongoing debate and there was different rumors sort of circulating about house division uh, over the course of the next couple of years, I gave essentially a version of this presentation on the origins of the house division issue. Uh, first at the Northwest Astrology Conference in May of 2017 in Seattle, and then again a year later at the United Astrology Conference in May of 2018 in Chicago. So what I'm presenting here today is basically just a, a slightly revised version of the same lecture, and the recording didn't come out well during the UAC lecture last May last year because the microphone died like halfway through the lecture. So I've always meant to redo it, and I'm just finally getting around to doing it today, especially since next month um, Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees are coming out to Denver, and we're going to record a series, uh, a two-part series on the significations of the houses. 
So I always meant to do the more detailed treatment of the house division uh, as an episode of the astrology podcast before we did that episode. So that's part of why I'm finally getting around to doing this now, you know, a while later. All right, so let's jump into it. All right, so I have to do a bit of a historical backdrop first in order to catch up people who might not be familiar with the history of ancient astrology. But to put it really simply, most of the techniques that we associate with Western astrology originated about 2,000 years ago uh, during what historians call the Hellenistic era. So, specifically around, let's say around circa 100 BCE, roughly speaking, give or take maybe a century or give or take a few decades, we see the introduction of the fourfold system of astrology, which is still essentially what is used in Western astrology today. It's still essentially the same system that's gone through some changes and there's been some modifications, but at the core of it, Western astrologers are still using charts that consist primarily of four parts. And one part is displaying the planets. The second is the 12 signs of the zodiac. The third is the concept of aspects or configurations between planets. And then finally, the fourth part of this system is the concept of the 12 houses. So this system that came together around this time, around let's say 100 BCE, part of that system represented a uh, sort of synthesis of the earlier astrological traditions, where there were long astrological traditions in Mesopotamia and Egypt that existed and um, had been developed and fed into, and then were eventually synthesized together in the Hellenistic uh, period. So part of the Hellenistic, this, this introduction of this four, fourfold system represents the continuation and the synthesis of an earlier astrological tradition that had been going on for at least 2,000 years at that point. Um, however, around that time, there were also some new concepts that were introduced as well that probably weren't practiced or perhaps didn't exist up until that point. So we need to, one of the things, this really affects the house division issue because we have to understand that while there were some pieces of astrology that were inherited from the earlier traditions, there were some techniques that were actually invented or only first introduced around this time period. So there were some new concepts as well. And houses uh, seem to be, to some extent, the concept of the 12 houses at least as 12 specific sectors in a chart that had a set of specific significations or meanings in those 12 different sectors that may have been a new concept that didn't necessarily exist prior to that time. So what happened is that, to back up even further, is that some parts of Western astrology originated in Mesopotamia, where about 4,000 years ago, or let's say around 2000 BCE, astrologers in that area began observing celestial omens and they began writing them down. So they began observing things like an eclipse in the sky at a certain time coincided with the death of a king. And so they would write that down on a little tiny clay tablet and store it away in a library. And eventually, after doing that for centuries, the Mesopotamians uh, collected and developed a pretty large library of astrological omens. 
and their astrology began to get more complex and more advanced. And eventually, um, they started developing a more advanced astronomy, and eventually, their astrology became more advanced, and they developed certain concepts that would be inherited and become important in later astrological traditions. One of those concepts was the sign, uh, the concept of the twelve sign zodiac, which became standardized by about five hundred to four hundred BCE. So this is the idea that you can divide up the ecliptic, which is the path um, that the planet, the sun, and the moon, and the other planets take when they move around the Earth from our perspective, when they move through the sky, um, that that path can be divided into 12 uh, equally sized 30-degree segments, which we refer to as today as the 12 signs of the zodiac. So basically, the Mesopotamians by the 5th century BCE developed the 12 signs of the zodiac. And over in Egypt, there was a simultaneous uh, tradition of astrology being developed simultaneously, roughly around the same time periods from about 2000 BCE onwards. And instead of focusing on the ecliptic, which is essentially the, the zodiac, which is what the Mesopotamians were focusing on over in Mesopotamia and roughly what is modern day Iraq. Over in Egypt, the Egyptians were focused on another astronomical concept which they had developed, their indigenous astrology, which is known as the 36 uh, decans. And the 36 decans were basically like asterisms or, or specific fixed stars and uh, 10 degree segments that were associated with the specific fixed stars. And they would use these 10 degree segments. In order to time different uh, religious rituals and in order to um, do different things culturally. But they would especially focus on using them for timing based on when certain deacons were rising over the eastern horizon or were culminating overhead. And at different eras, they would focus on the rising deacon, and other eras, they would focus on the culminating deacon. But what's important about that is that. By focusing on the notion of certain fixed stars rising or culminating, they were essentially focused on the diurnal rotation. And the diurnal rotation is also what um, essentially the later concept of the 12 houses is based on. So, for all intents and purposes, the Egyptians were using a precursor, they were focusing on a precursor to the concept of the 12 houses, even though the concept or the idea of 12 specific astrological houses probably didn't exist yet at this point in time. So eventually what happens is around the 4th century BCE, there was a young uh, Macedonian king named Alexander who took an, uh, an army of Macedonians and Greeks out of southern Europe, and he stormed down through Turkey and down through the Middle East over to Egypt, conquered Egypt, then went over um, across Mesopotamia, conquered Mesopotamia, Persia, all the way over to the westernmost portions of India uh, before eventually turning back and dying under mysterious circumstances. So Alexander, after he died, he had conquered like this huge swath of land, which included those two previous geographical areas that had long astrological traditions for 2,000 years that we were just talking about, which are Mesopotamia and Egypt. And all of a sudden, Mesopotamia and Egypt were under the control of Greek-speaking rulers uh, for the next 
several centuries. So this created a situation where there was increased trade and commerce and interactions going on between those two areas, which were the sort of birthplaces of those two different forms of astrology. Uh, Mesopotamia, of course, with being the home of the 12 sign zodiac, and Egypt being the home of the concept of the 36 decans and the idea of focusing on the rising decan and the culminating decan. So what happens after the 4th century BCE once these two cultures are having these increased interactions is we start to see this cross-pollination taking place between Mesopotamia and Egypt where their astrological systems eventually start to uh, commingle and start to become merged to some extent. So all of a sudden, this creates a situation where the notion of looking at the rising decan and the culminating decan, and just the concept of the decans in general, is being merged together with the concept of the 12 sign zodiac. So all of a sudden, when you start doing that, it leads inevitably to the concept of looking at the rising, not just the rising decan or the culminating decan, but also the rising zodiacal sign and the culminating zodiacal sign. So you can start to see where this is going because we're starting to head in the direction of the later concept of the 12 houses where you focus on things like your rising sign or your culminating sign, which you might call like the midheaven sign. And due to the intermingling between Mesopotamia and Egypt at this time, that's basically where things started heading during this few century period where we're not exactly sure what was happening because we don't have a ton of documentation. But we do start to see uh, in Egyptian temples, there were um, like illustrations of the zodiac that started to be merged with the decans. So we can see that those two different approaches to astrology are starting to intermingle especially in Egypt, where in Egypt they started incorporating the zodiac into some of their different iconography and like sort of uh, stone reliefs and things like that. Okay, so this set the stage for the introduction to the 12 houses. And before we can go back to the whole historical question, I want to first define the different approaches to house division because um, especially from an ancient standpoint, if we're talking about the Hellenistic tradition, which was practiced from roughly the first century BCE until about the sixth or seventh century CE, and that's that's basically like Greco-Roman astrology, or I call it Hellenistic astrology because it it originated in the Hellenistic period. So, in that tradition of astrology, which was essentially the first tradition of astrology that had the fourfold system of planets, signs, houses, and aspects, uh, there were basically three different forms of house division. And to some extent, this is still largely true to this day that there's three main forms of house division. So um, in defining these three, the first one that I would define the first form of house division is whole sign houses. Uh, and I'll go through and I'll have a diagram in the next few slides to show you exactly what whole sign houses is. But the first form of house division is whole sign houses. The second form of house division is equal houses. And the third form of house division is quadrant houses. And quadrant houses, or what I'm calling quadrant houses, 
includes a bunch of different subsets like uh, Placidus is the most common form of house division or the most popular form of house division today. And for example, um, Astra.com or Astradienst uses Placidus as the default form of house division when you cast a chart there. So as a result of that, most people are primarily familiar with Placidus, and Placidus has been the most common form of house division for the past century. Um, but quadrant house systems include other forms such as Porphyry houses, Regiomontanus, uh, Coke, and uh, a bunch of others basically because there's different ways of dividing up quadrant houses based on different criteria, and there's, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Whereas for a whole sign and equal houses, it's pretty straightforward. There's just one approach to calculating those forms of house division. Anyway, roughly speaking, there's these three different approaches to house division in ancient astrology and all the way through till today. And what it comes down to is that there's basically three different ways of defining what we call the midheaven. And that becomes the sticking point for the most part. Uh, it's not just about there is also a debate about where to start the first house or where the cusp of the first house begins. But the major difference between those three forms of house division is really primarily about how you define the midheaven and what the midheaven is exactly, because there's three very distinct ways of defining it that are different in each of those forms of house division. So that's what I want to get into and want to illustrate or talk about a little bit here at this point. All right, so here's the whole sign house system. And in the whole sign house system, what you do is you find the degree of the zodiac that is rising over the eastern horizon. Um, if it's in a birth chart, it's at the moment of the person's birth. And then whatever degree of the zodiac is rising over the eastern horizon at that time, which is also known as the ascendant. So the degree of the ecliptic that is rising over the eastern horizon is also known as the degree of the ascendant. And essentially, whatever sign of the zodiac the ascendant is located in at that time, the entirety of that sign becomes the first whole sign house. So in ancient Greek astrology, they called the, the word for the Ascendant was horoscopos, which meant hour marker. And the purpose of the ascendant in the whole sign house system seems to have been to mark or to designate the rising sign and to designate the sign of the zodiac that would become the first house. So, regardless of how early in the rising sign or how late in the rising sign the degree of the ascendant is, the entirety of that sign becomes the first house. And then the sign of the zodiac that is after that in zodiacal order, which is counterclockwise, becomes the second house. And the sign after that becomes the third house, and so on and so forth. So there ends up being 12 houses because there are 12 signs, and each of the 12 houses perfectly coincides with one of the 12 signs because the starting point for the house is the starting point for the sign and the ending point of the house is the ending point of the sign. So in this approach to house division, when the ancient astrologers like Vedius Valens or Dorotheus, when they use the term midheaven, they're usually referring to the tenth whole sign house, or in other words, the tenth sign relative to the rising sign in zodiacal order. So the tenth sign relative to the ascendant 
always is the midheaven from zero to 30 degrees of that sign. So oftentimes when you see an ancient astrologer in the Greek text say midheaven, they're talking about just whatever the 10th sign is in that context. So the midheaven is the 10th sign. So that's whole sign houses. Um, so one thing that's important to note in whole sign houses is that the horizon still exists, and the horizon, which is represented in a chart by the exact degrees of the ascendant and descendant and that axis, uh, it still exists. It's just that it does not act as the starting point for the first house, but instead the degree of the ascendant just marks or designates the entire sign, which becomes the first house. And oftentimes, part of that sign is going to be above the horizon. And part of that sign is going to be below the horizon, with the degree of the ascendant itself designated the horizon. So it's something to that's important to note because it sometimes trips people up when they start thinking about it. Because whole sign houses is sort of a radically different approach to take compared to the quadrant house systems that are more popular in modern times, or that have become more popular in modern times. Uh, so. Again, whatever it doesn't matter where the degree of the ascendant is located in the rising sign, if it's at the beginning of the sign, or even if it's at 29 degrees of the sign, the entirety of that sign becomes the first house, and then you just number the rest of the houses uh, in counterclockwise order after that. So if the ascendant was in Cancer, then Cancer becomes the first house. The sign after that, which is Leo, becomes the second house. The sign after that, Virgo, becomes the third house, and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things that's important about this approach to house division and this idea that the ascendant has the power to mark or to designate the rising sign and to designate which sign of the zodiac is the rising sign is that this isn't actually unique in ancient astrology, but it's part of a broader approach that you see replicated in other areas of Hellenistic astrology as well. And one of those areas is the use of the so-called lots, like the lot of fortune or the lot of spirit, which in later times or in modern times became known as the part of fortune or the part of spirit. So lots were used very similarly within the context of whole sign houses in ancient astrology, where you would calculate for example, let's say the lot of fortune, and whatever sign the lot of fortune is in, it would designate that entire sign with those topics. So uh, if the lot of fortune falls in like 29 degrees of Aquarius, then the entirety of Aquarius takes on some of the qualities of the lot of fortune. Or there was also other lots that were used for different topical matters, like for example, the lot of children was used in order to calculate topics relative to the native's children. Or there was also a lot of marriage where you could calculate and it would add topics to a certain part of the chart or a certain sign of the zodiac that would pertain to the idea of like relationships and marriage. So this is important because it's part of a broader conceptual approach that was kind of common and was often taken for granted in ancient astrology, where different significators in a chart had the power to mark the entire sign of the zodiac that they fell in. And this is part of a broader, uh, almost sign based approach that was used in ancient astrology, where they were paying attention to both uh, placements by sign as well as placements by degree. 
but oftentimes when a placement falls in a certain sign, it will um, alter the quality of the entirety of that sign. Similar to how when the ascendant in whole sign houses falls in a specific sign, that entire sign becomes the rising sign and the entirety of that sign becomes marked with first house topics. So another way that this works is that in some authors, the way that they used the lot of fortune is they used it as the starting point for an alternative set of houses called derived houses from the sign of the lot of fortune. So in this approach, whatever sign the lot of fortune falls in, the entirety of that sign becomes the first house relative to derived houses from the lot of fortune. And then the sign after that becomes the second house, and the sign after that becomes the third house, and so on and so forth. And some authors like Vadius Valens would sometimes place more emphasis on the these derived houses from the lot of fortune, these derived whole sign houses from the lot of fortune, than they would the derived houses from the ascendant in certain instances for certain topics. So for example, when Valens at one point in like book two or book three of the anthology, where he starts talking about indications for death and mortality, um, he looks at them primarily within the context of paying attention to the eighth whole sign house relative to the lot of fortune. So he'll calculate the lot of fortune and then he'll see what the eighth sign is relative to that. And that's the primary thing that he'll focus on for indications relative to death. Or in other instances, he'll focus on, in a, in a different chapter, he'll focus on the 11th sign relative to fortune, which he calls the place of acquisition. And he says that that pertains to um, sort of positive financial windfalls and other things like that if it's well situated in the chart. So my point with this is just that whole sign houses is part of a broader conceptual framework that was being used in ancient Hellenistic astrology which made it so that um, certain significators like the degree of the ascendant or the lot of fortune or other lots could fall in a sign and then they would mark the entirety of that sign with their topics and then sometimes you could do you could set up a system of houses from that sign but it was always done within the context of whole sign houses so in addition to whole sign houses um, the second form of house division that was used in ancient astrology is known today as the equal house system. And in the equal house system, you calculate the exact degree of the ascendant, and the degree of the ascendant, whatever sign of the zodiac it's located in, becomes the starting point for the first house. And then you measure exactly 30 degrees, and wherever that comes to in the following zodiacal sign, basically downwards or in um, counterclockwise motion in zodiacal order, which is always counterclockwise, that becomes the end of the first house. So that entire increment from, let's say if the ascendant was at 15 degrees of Cancer, then the starting point of the first house would be at 15 degrees of Cancer, and the first house would extend all the way into until 15 degrees of Leo. And that would be the end of the first house at 15 Leo and the beginning of the second house. Then the second house would extend all the way from 15 degrees of Leo to 15 degrees of Virgo. The third house would extend from 15 Virgo to uh, 15 Libra, and so on and so forth. So each of the houses is, again, exactly 30 degrees 
just like it was in the whole sign house system, the previous system, but instead of measuring it relative to the rising sign, you're measuring it relative to the rising degree. This system is unique because in this system, the midheaven is always going to be exactly 90 degrees upwards relative to the ascendant. So the midheaven is uh, here if we have the ascendant at 15 degrees of Cancer, then that means the midheaven will automatically be at 15 degrees of Aries. And in the equal house system, uh, the midheaven is actually, there's a unique astronomical term which is used to refer to the midheaven astronomically, which is the nonagesmal, which just means 90, 90 degrees basically. But what's interesting about the nonagesmal is that that is always that 90 degree point upwards relative to the ascendant is the highest point in the zodiac at any given point in time. So here's a little diagram that demonstrates that. And this diagram and a few others that follow were made by my friend, an astrologer named Brett Joseph, who has just some amazing, uh, a great, amazing illustrations and a, a great YouTube channel. He's been on the Astrology Podcast before, but I'd recommend searching for his work. Uh, it's just Brett Joseph, astrologer, or Gemini Brett is what he goes by sometimes as well. So he made this diagram for me where he shows it. It depicts the um, the orange line is the zodiac, and the sort of arc of the zodiac that begins over on the left by the eastern horizon, and over on the the right by the zodiac um, intersecting the western horizon, and the very highest point, or at least the center point of that arc. Is the 90 degree point relative to the ascendant, and that is the midheaven in the equal house system. So the 90 degree point is the midheaven in the equal house system. And what's unique and special about it from an astronomical standpoint is it is that um, center point in the arc of the zodiac uh, at any one point in time that's exactly 90 degrees relative to the horizon. So that makes it unique and symbolically important in some way, or symbolically significant. All right, now we come to the third approach to house division, generally speaking. And the third approach to house division is known as quadrant houses. So in quadrant houses, the degree of the ascendant again becomes the starting point for the first house. So just like the equal house system, we start with whatever the degree of the ascendant is, and that becomes the cusp or the starting point of the first house. But then in this system, the midheaven is defined as the local meridian or the exact degree of the, the local meridian. And the, the local meridian is essentially the north-south line or where the north-south line runs um, relative to where a person is standing on earth at any given point in time. And so the quadrant house systems, on the one hand, have more of a directional focus because the midheaven in this context is being defined as the north south line. But there's also another unique point about the degree of the midheaven or the meridian in this instance, which is that it's also the point when planets reach it, when they're at, they reach their highest um, elevation or their highest point in the sky when passing over the meridian relative to um, an observer's perspective when they're standing in any given location on Earth at any point in time. 
So that's the midheaven in the quadrant house systems. You establish the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the meridian. And then what happens is you trisect the distance between those two points in the chart and you divide it into three segments, basically. And then you do the same with all four of the degrees of the angles in the chart. So the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the midheaven, you measure the distance between those two degrees, and then you divide it into three parts. Uh, then you do the same with the degree of the midheaven to the degree of the descendant, and you divide that into three parts, and then another quadrant from the degree of the descendant to the degree of the IC, and then finally from the degree of the IC to the degree of the ascendant. So those four quadrants get trisected or divided into three parts, and that's why we call it quadrant. That's one of the reasons why it's called quadrant house systems, because then the debate amongst quadrant house system users is then how to divide those uh, spaces in between those degrees. So some systems like porphyry houses, which I believe is the one that I used here in this diagram, they just divide it up into three equal parts. So you literally just calculate the number of degrees between the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the midheaven, and then you divide that evenly into thirds. But there's other approaches to house division, like uh, to quadrant house division, like Placidus or Alcabicius, that use other um, sometimes comp more complicated systems of logic or, or motivations for trisecting and dividing up those sections into three parts. And we're not going to get into the details of that here, but broadly speaking, that's essentially how quadrant house systems are calculated. And here's another diagram from Brett Joseph where what happens, what this is demonstrating is even though um, when we talk about the ascendant, we talk about the ascendant being in the east, and that's where like the sun rises over the eastern horizon in the morning, and that's roughly where the ascendant is, or the sun sets near the western horizon over in the evening, and all of the other planets do the same things. So they rise over the eastern horizon at some point in the day near the ascendant, and they set near the western horizon near the descendant. And that's essentially what the degree of the, the ascendant and descendant are, is the eastern and western horizon. But one of the things that people don't realize is that the ascendant is not always exactly due east, and the descendant is not always exactly due west. But over the course of a, a 24-hour period or over the course of the day, it sort of shifts a little bit back and forth so that the degree of the ascendant or the degree of the ecliptic that which we associate with the ascendant is not exactly due east, but it sort of shifts back and forth. And the north-south line is the meridian. And it's the intersection of that north-south line, uh, which here is, is depicted in green, with the orange line of the ecliptic that defines the meridian midheaven. And basically what can happen is that the uh, degree of the meridian of the north-south line can shift back and forth, and sometimes it's the ecliptic is a little bit more due east and a little bit more or a little bit more due west which changes the position of the midheaven in the chart and that's what leads to the distortion in the different quadrants in the quadrant house systems so that's kind of complicated and we don't need to get into all of it here but you just need to understand that 
there's three different ways of defining the midheaven. Each of them has unique and independent and relatively important astronomical properties that are unique astronomical properties that are valid and are potentially symbolically significant. But because these diff three different ways of defining the midheaven are somewhat distinct, it can lead to uh, radically different ways of calculating the houses depending on which one you want to focus on or which one you think is more important. So this diagram just shows the three different things that we call the midheaven depending on those three systems. So the 10th whole sign house would be identifying, and there's a circle here around the entirety of the culminating zodiacal sign that is in the culminating or 10th house position. It's the 10th sign relative to the rising sign, which is over on the eastern horizon. So the midheaven in that context is just, let's say, the entirety of the, the um, zodiacal sign, which is at the peak or is at the highest part of the arc of the zodiac at any one point in time. Then we have the nonagesimal degree, which is similar, except it focuses on the highest degree, or not the highest degree, but the degree that is at the peak of the arc of the zodiac or of the ecliptic at any point in time. And the nonagesimal degree, of course, will always be in the 10th whole sign house. And so, therefore, there's a bit of, or quite a bit of overlap between the 10th whole sign house and what we call the midheaven in that system, as well as the 10th whole sign house or the start of the 10th whole sign house in the equal house system. Then over on the left, we have the meridian midheaven, which is the uh, where the north-south line intersects with the ecliptic. And since north and south, it's not always exactly lining up exactly with where the center point of the zodiac is or where the top of the zodiac is in this context, that's why sometimes the midheaven can be over more towards the degree of the ascendant in the chart, or the midheaven in the quadrant house systems can be a little bit more over to the descendant in the chart. It really just depends on the time of day and the location and other considerations like that. So those are the three different ways of defining the midheaven, and that's why you can have three different radically different approaches to house division because those can be so distinct from an astronomical standpoint. When you superimpose all of that on a chart, this is roughly what it looks like. So let's say we have a chart with 17 degrees of Aquarius rising, and the rising is associated with the east, and the descendant is located is over on the west, which is Leo in this instance. So if the ascendant is at 17 degrees of Aquarius, then we know that um, using whole sign houses, that the entirety of Aquarius from 0 to 30 degrees of that sign is the first house, Pisces is the second house, so on and so forth, and then Scorpio becomes the 10th whole sign house, Sagittarius becomes the 11th whole sign house, and Capricorn becomes the 12th house. But in the equal house system, we would say that 17 degrees of Aquarius becomes the cusp of the first house. And 17 degrees of Scorpio is the nonagesimal degree. That's the highest, or that's the um, sort of peak of the zodiacal arc, the arc of the zodiacal circle. And that would become the degree of the midheaven at 17 degrees of Scorpio, 90 degrees upwards from the ascendant in the equal house system. And then finally, the meridian in this chart, when superimposed here, would be at 5 degrees of Sagittarius, 
So over in the 11th whole sign house, uh, the degree of the mid meridian midheaven is shifted. So that's what that as same astronomical diagram looks like when it's superimposed on uh, just a two-dimensional illustration, which is essentially what a birth chart is. It's a two-dimensional illustration of an actual like 3D, three-dimensional alignment of the cosmos at any one point in time. And that's one of the things that's kind of tricky about this whole issue is that astrologers are more used to paying attention to the two-dimensional chart and don't always tend to be familiar with what this actually looks like in the night sky, which is a lot closer to what I was showing here in these some of these diagrams that were generated by the astronomy program called Stellarium. So I'd recommend checking that out because it can sometimes help you to understand some of these issues about what the midheaven is or what the rising sign is or other things like that a little bit better than you might otherwise if you're only looking at charts. Okay, so that's the sort of basic de definitions that I wanted to define in terms of the three different forms of house division. And now I want to transition into talking about the surviving evidence for the use of these different forms of house division in Greco-Roman astrology and talking about what forms of house division were actually used, what are the what's the prominence of some of the different forms of house division, and what's the actual evidence that we have for making some statements if we were to draw some conclusions from some of that evidence. Like in the past, when I've said, when I've made the claim that whole sign houses was the, I've always said the, the predominant form of house division or the most common form of house division in ancient astrology, what is that based on? And, the, and can that be validated or is that just a statement that I'm pulling out of thin air? So I'm going to spend the next little bit of this lecture actually demonstrating what data we have to draw on and what conclusions we can make from it uh, based on the evidence that survives. So let's go ahead and jump into that now. Okay, so hundreds of astrological charts survive from the Hellenistic tradition. And most of these are birth charts. So natal astrology was definitely the most common form of astrology from what we can tell from in the Hellenistic tradition from roughly the first century BCE until about roughly the sixth century CE. Most of the techniques of Hellenistic astrology and of this approach to Western astrology that is like the starting point of the fourfold system seem like they were largely designed around the concept of natal astrology. And this may have had to do with some different philosophical trends that were occurring in the ancient world, especially in the Hellenistic period, coming out of a period when Stoicism was really popular and the idea of accepting your fate was sort of a very high-minded, like philosophical aspiration that not just many philosophers had, but a lot of the astrologers in the ancient world also seem to state that as one of their primary goals, where they say that the purpose of astrology is to know what's coming up in the future so that you know what you have to accept ahead of time and you can have some preparation to accept it both the good things that might happen in your future as well as some of the bad things or some of the negative things or, or challenging things that if you're sort of forewarned that you're forearmed not always necessarily in the sense of like changing it but sometimes even just in the sense of of accepting it and having some preparation for what's coming up around the corner and that's one of the few philosophical concepts that is mentioned by 
a lot of the ancient astrologers that a lot of them seem to have held in common. So that's one of the reasons why I think natal astrology was often more was more prominent during this time period because there was more of a focus on the idea of figuring out what your fate is and figuring out what you had to accept, uh, which is kind of a stoic concept, but that's probably due to the popularity of Stoicism in the late Hellenistic period and in the early Roman Empire in the first few centuries. So mostly birth charts survive from the Hellenistic tradition. Um, this is the period from about the first century BCE to the sixth century CE. These charts are mainly written in Greek. There's uh, a few that are written in Demotic, which is an uh, Egyptian script, and there's not that many that are written in Latin, but there's a few. There's actually a surprisingly low amount of charts written in Latin. Most of them by far are written in Greek. And also most of the surviving astrological texts were written in Greek because Greek was kind of like the educated language that was used in most scientific and philosophical texts during this time period. So the different charts that survive are typically divided into two categories. One of these groups is standalone charts, which are just individual surviving birth charts basically that exist and survive on their own. And then there's a second group, which is known as literary charts, which are charts that survived um, embedded in instructional manuals, like usually in like an astrological text when an astrologer is introducing and trying to teach a concept to a reader, they'll sometimes introduce uh, an example chart. And oftentimes these are actual birth charts from the case studies of the astrologer from at some point in the first few centuries. So these different charts are important, especially the standalone charts, because the, these charts are basically the raw data that was needed for an astrological consultation. So when we find one of these calculated charts from an ancient source, we have to take it pretty seriously because oftentimes, especially the standalone charts, were the chart that a person would get calculated and then take to an astrologer to have it interpreted. So it's almost like the equivalent of somebody going to astro.com today and getting a, a, a copy of their birth chart and then taking it to an astrologer either online or in person and asking them to interpret it. So when we see these surviving charts, we have to, I think, take seriously the positions that are calculated in them are the positions that would be interpreted by the astrologer. All right, so most of the birth charts that survive from the Hellenistic tradition, the majority of the charts tend to coincide with what is roughly the high point of the Roman Empire, which is when it was at its height and it had the furthest extent of like land that the Romans had conquered right around the second century CE. So this is a, a map that sort of shows the Roman Empire at its height in the second century CE, where it had pretty much control over the entire Mediterranean region and was pretty spread out across the entire Mediterranean. So when we look at birth charts, like surviving birth charts that are outside of authors like Vadius Valens, because Valens lived in the second century and, and he's the source where the most birth charts survive from because he has over 100 charts in his uh, work. But when we count up charts that are outside of Valens, 
we usually end up with a distribution that looks roughly like this, where we see the number of surviving charts peaking around the second and third centuries CE, which is roughly around the time of the height of the Roman Empire, and then starting to decline after that um, in the fourth century, and then pretty abruptly after that in the fifth and sixth centuries as the Roman Empire goes into decline. And the practice of astrology also goes into decline as well, not just due to the decline of the Roman Empire, but also due to increased opposition from religious groups, especially Christianity, became very hostile against astrology in the later part of the Roman Empire. And that sort of curbed the practice of astrology a lot more than in previous centuries. So that's part of the reason why we see this distribution. Most of the charts. The individual standalone charts that survive look like this. They're basically just little scraps, um, often of papyrus. The majority of them probably come from Egypt, uh, do come from Egypt, and the majority of them are just little scraps of papyrus or little scraps of paper that have, uh, usually in Greek, little notes written across them that contain the planetary positions for the individual. And this is an example that comes from. Um, the Oxyrhynchus papyri. So this is an example, this is a translation, a translated example of one of those charts that just survives on a piece of papyrus and just has the person's um, birth chart position sort of scribbled down on it. So this translation, it says, Nativity of Philo, year 13 of Antonius, Caesar the Lord, Famenoth 15 to 16, the fourth hour of the night. The Sun in Pisces, Jupiter and Mercury in Aries, Saturn in Cancer, Mars in Leo, Venus, and the Moon in Aquarius, Scorpio is the Ascendant. And then here over on the right, I have a diagram that literally outlines what that chart then would look like if you put those positions in the zodiac. And it shows the Ascendant in Scorpio and all the other uh, positions of the planets based on the signs that they were located. And um, the scholar. Uh, I believe it was Alexander Jones who recovered this chart. It was either Alexander Jones or Otto Neugebauer that recovered this chart. They actually were able to date it, and they came up with a date of March 11th or March 12th, 150 CE. So this is a birth chart of this person who was born either on March 11th or March 12th, 150 CE. And that's one of the things that's cool about looking at and recovering some of these standalone charts from archaeological finds is they're actually you're literally finding the birth chart of somebody that lived almost 2000 years ago and you're able to using modern astrology software programs actually figure out um, based on the positions of the planets because the planets their movements are relatively fixed and relatively stable so we can calculate where they were 2000 years ago with um Pretty good precision at this point in time. And when you do that for some of these charts, you can actually narrow down and figure out the date uh, when the chart was set for, which again is just March 11th or 12th, 150 CE in this instance. So that's one standalone chart. Here's another standalone chart for somebody else that was born on February 17th in the year 320 CE. So the chart in Greek. It says, Year 36 of Diocletian, uh, Mechir 22nd, Hour 2 of the Day, Ascendant in Pisces, Saturn in Aries, 
Jupiter in Leo on the same day in Virgo, Sun in Aquarius, Mars in Aquarius, Venus in Aquarius, Mercury in Aquarius, Moon in Scorpio, good luck. <laughs> so um, this is our sort of super Aquarius stellium friend who had four, four planets in Aquarius and was born in February of 320 CE. Notice one of the things that's happening here, and this is common in the vast majority of charts, is they're just saying what sign of the zodiac the planets are located, and they're saying what sign of the zodiac the ascendant is located in, and that's all the information that they're giving. And that's true in the vast, vast majority of charts. And usually at the beginning, it'll it'll list the birth data of the person, which is probably the data that the person knew from their parents and gave to have the astrologer calculate the positions. Then the positions are being calculated, and then the statement at the end that just says good luck is actually there in a lot of the charts. I'm not sure if it's the majority, but almost the majority of the charts have a similar statement where it's just like farewell or good luck at the very end. So this is what the majority of the standalone charts look like basically when you translate them and calculate them as just uh, a list of planetary placements in the sign of the zodiac for the seven traditional planets plus the ascendant. Uh, there are occasionally, rarely, but there are occasionally some more elaborate horoscopes, some much more elaborate horoscopes that are found where it will calculate not just the sign of the planets, but it'll also calculate the degree that the planets are located in. It'll calculate what decan or what bounds or terms the planet is located in. It'll also calculate other things like the lot of fortune or other lots. And these are sometimes referred to uh, by certain researchers like Alexander Jones as the so-called deluxe horoscopes because they just contain more information or more detailed sort of um, calculation of the planetary placements in the per person's birth chart than what the vast majority of the surviving birth charts contained. So if you want to hear a little bit about one of those, if you go back to listen to episode 129 of the Astrology Podcast titled a newly discovered fourth century horoscope, I interviewed Dorian Greenbaum about a, a, a deluxe horoscope that was recently rediscovered and translated just in the past few years. So you can listen to that episode for more information about those. So what usually seems to have happened, and I think what the consensus is, and I'm pretty on board with this theory, is that these little scraps of papyrus or these little scraps of paper that contain these planetary positions, and there's hundreds of these that survive, especially from Egypt, because in Egypt, the temperature and the climate is so dry there that when stuff gets buried in sand, it can have a tendency to be preserved. And so then later archaeological digs sometimes will unearth some of these huge caches of um, birth charts in different cities. Like, for example, in the Egyptian city of the ancient city of Oxyrhynchus, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a group of archaeologists that discovered when they were digging in this, uh, the sands of Egypt, they discovered what was essentially the, the rubbish or the trash dump of this ancient city of Oxyrhynchus. And there they found a bunch of different pieces of papyrus. And amongst the papyrus were dozens and dozens of birth charts that had just been scribbled on these little pieces of, of paper or papyrus. Uh, anyways, so what probably happened is that 
the client would either go to an astrologer or potentially to an astronomer, basically somebody who specialized, who had an ephemeris and specialized in calculating planetary positions. They would, um, you know, give their birth data to the person. They would say what day and month and year and what time they were born, and then they would have the person calculate their planetary positions and their birth chart at the moment of their birth. And then the person would write them down on this little piece of papyrus, and the person would have that with them. But when it came time for the consultation, uh, the astrologer at that point would look at the little piece of papyrus, and some of them would take out one of these uh, astrologers' consultation boards, which um, some of the more elaborate ones were like a wooden board that's kind of like a chess board. And on this board, they would open it up and it would have the zodiac inscribed on it. And the astrologer would take out um, a, a few pieces, a few stones or little markers, basically, that would be representing each of the planets. And then they would recreate the birth chart of the person on this board and then do the consultation. So there's been a few of these consultation boards that have survived. Uh, this is a picture of one that comes from an article, a really good article on uh, the boards by an uh, astronomer, historian of astronomy named James Evans. And the title of the article is The Astrologer's Apparatus A Picture of Professional Practice in Gre Greco Roman Egypt. So here's a little black and white image of that. And this is one of the more elaborate boards that's been found that was made out of wood and I think there was like lining or trimming that had like gold and ivory and other exotic materials like that for some of the more elaborate boards. But there was also cheaper versions that have been found. And there's at least one story that survives in, I think, a Greek source that makes it sound like some astrologers might use cheaper materials if they didn't have like an elaborate board. They might sometimes take out. Uh, or use sand basically. They would have sand and then they would draw out the chart in sand and then put the positions of the planets there in order to represent the person's birth chart and then they would do the consultation. So there's probably a whole different range of, of options in terms of different socioeconomic levels, just like there is today for astrologers, where there's some astrologers that are doing relatively well for themselves, and there's other astrologers that are like um just getting by with what they have and just reading charts for people on the street or what have you. Uh, but the use of an astrologer's board of some sort was probably taken for granted. And that's the reason why what survives for the most part is not diagrams of charts, but it's instead those little scraps of papyrus which just list the planetary positions, especially by zodiacal sign. With the assumption that the client is then going to give that to the astrologer, and the astrologer is then going to use it in order to calculate the positions, or at least in order to place them at the time of the consultation in the astrologer's apparatus or on the consultation board. So, I actually have a theory that a lot of these survive probably partially because it's probably like today where either the client comes to the astrologer and then the astrologer calculates the planetary positions and writes them down and then does the consultation on the astrologer's board 
And then the client, after that consultation, they're able to take that piece of papyrus and keep it with them just in case they either want to come back to the same astrologer for a follow-up consultation in the future. That way, the astrologer doesn't have to calculate the same chart over again, but the client can just give them their data again. Or in some instances, I kind of wonder if, well, also the astrologer, the client then could take that to other astrologers and have other astrologers interpret their birth chart without needing to have the astrologer recalculate the chart over again. But I also wonder if in some instances there might have been astronomers or people that specialized in astronomy or specialized in the calculation of birth charts. And I wonder if some, in some instances that might not have been a separate job that certain people specialized in where you would like go to this person who was really good at calculating charts get your chart calculated, and then they write it down on a piece of paper, and then you take it to the astrologer, and the astrologer can interpret it. So I don't think it's always a given that the astronomer and the astrologer were one and the same, because especially in the later period, um, there's some discussions in Theon of Alexandria, who was a prominent astrologer around the fourth, late 4th or early 5th century. He was the father of Hypatia, and he says, I think he wrote like a commentary on Ptolemy's handy tables, and I believe it's in the introduction to that that he talks about how there were some people that would come to him with questions about how to use those tables to calculate birth charts. And those are obviously astrologers who wanted to know how to calculate um, birth charts accurately. And Theon was writing this commentary in order to make it simpler to understand for those types of people who might have been good at interpreting charts and being astrologers but they might not have been like expert experts in mathematical astronomy and things like that so sometimes just like today there may have been even though it's usually assumed or a lot of historical texts say that you know in prior to modern times astrologers and astronomers were always one and the same and there was no distinction between the category I'm not sure that that was necessarily true, but instead there may have been some distinction, and that may be part of the reason why we have all these papyrus fragments that exist that just give the planetary positions, and those would have been then taken to an astrologer to be interpreted. Conversely, some of the larger like caches of these could have been like uh, from the personal archives or files of individual astrologers who could have kept copies themselves just in case. Uh, somebody came back to them to get their chart calculated later. And the existence of, like, for example, the fact that Vadius Valens uses over a hundred chart examples in his anthology uh, in order to demonstrate how certain techniques work does uh, clearly imply that there's different astrologers that had their own personal case files that they would keep with like interesting examples that they would subsequently use for teaching purposes. So that could be part of what some of these different um, caches of birth charts are as well. All right. So what I did with these charts is I went through all of them that survived because there's like a lot of them. There's a few hundred of them of the standalone charts that survive, but there's not so many that you can't go through all of them because there's actually a limited number of collections that they survive in where different historians have um, basically preserved them and like republished the charts and then calculated the dates of the charts. So you can kind of go through and count through all of them. 
So what, what I did is I went through and I counted all of the charts in order to see what approach to house division was used in each of them in basically the entire Hellenistic tradition from the first century BC through the third through the sixth or seventh century CE. Now, this approach was actually first outlined and first um, used by the astrologer Robert Hand in a 2007 article in the journal Culture and Cosmos that was titled Signs as Houses, parentheses, Places in Ancient Astrology, where he basically initially was the one that outlined this approach to calculating and trying to tabulate or figure out the distribution of charts that were using different forms of house division in the ancient world. And I basically followed a, a similar approach, but I just wanted to do the data. I wanted to count up the data myself, and I also wanted to pay attention to what midheaven was used in each of these charts, because I think that's something that Rob didn't focus on quite as much, and that's something that I was more interested in in order to distinguish between whole sign houses versus equal houses versus quadrant houses, and in order to be very clear about that. Um, but Rob's article, I think, is actually available online. So if you just Google signs as houses in ancient astrology, you'll find that article and you'll find that the data that he presents is very similar to the results that I have in this presentation. So what I did when I calculated all the charts is I divided them into three categories. And the first category is surviving standalone charts that only record the rising sign. Or in other words, the ones like the two that we just looked at, where they only said what sign of the zodiac the ascendant was located in. That means that the only information you have in terms of calculating the houses in that chart is that the ascendant is in a certain sign of the zodiac, like let's say Pisces. And in those instances, the instances where only the rising sign is noted, that means that only whole sign houses could, that's the only system of house division that could be used um, in that chart. Because in order to calculate equal houses, you have to have the exact degree of the ascendant. Otherwise, you don't know where the starting point or the cusp of the first house is. And in quadrant houses, you need not just the degree of the ascendant, but also the degree of the midheaven. So therefore, yeah, so if only the rising sign is noted, then whole sign houses is logically the only system of house division that could have been used in the, those example charts. So I went through and I calculated all of the charts and put into one category, one uh, pile, let's say, all the charts that only recorded the rising sign. Then I made a second category that was only the charts that record the degree of the ascendant, but do not note the degree of the midheaven, because those would tend to, with those you could potentially calculate equal houses. And then the third category I recorded was those charts that record both the degree of the ascendant, the exact degree of the ascendant, as well as the degree of the meridian midheaven, since those charts could then be used to calculate quadrant houses since those are the two necessary precursors for that approach to house division. So here are the results of that. This is the distribution of those three categories when we're looking at just the standalone charts, where it's just like a little piece of papyrus that survives that contains the planetary positions usually of just somebody's birth chart, basically. And what I found is that there was approximately 
124 charts, the vast majority of the charts, like almost 90% of the charts, that only record in the chart the rising sign, which means uh, basically just the ascendant was located in Pisces or the ascendant was located in Aries or what have you, but they do not record the rising degree and they do not record the degree of the ascendant or meridian midheaven. Conversely, there were 12 charts that I found, 12 standalone charts that record the rising degree so they have the actual they note the actual degree of the ascendant but they do not note the degree of the meridian midheaven and then there was five standalone charts that i found so far give or give or take um, that record both the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the meridian midheaven so this is the the raw data and the basic distribution where there's there's basically 88% of the surviving standalone charts roughly only calculate only give you the rising sign and that's a pretty hugely disproportionate amount i think you can see just based on if you're looking at this visually based on the pie chart um, that that gives you it's like 88% re uh, only record the rising degree or, or only record the rising sign uh, 8% record the rising degree and only 4% roughly record both the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the midheaven. So what does that mean? Um, I think there's some conclusions that we can draw from that distribution. Uh, the first conclusion and, and the most important conclusion is that this supports my statement that I've been making for several years is occasionally challenged by proponents of quadrant house division who want to pretend as if quadrant houses were used more frequently than they were or that whole sign houses was not used as frequently as I've claimed that it was. But I think from that data and from that distribution, we can easily draw the conclusion that the vast majority of the standalone charts from the Hellenistic tradition, which was the first several centuries of the practice of horoscopic astrology that used the 12 houses, the vast majority of standalone charts from the Hellenistic tradition from the 1st century BCE until about the 6th or 7th century CE could only have used the whole sign house system because this is the only system that you can calculate if all you know is what the rising sign is. If you don't know what the degree of the rising ascendant is, if you don't know the degree of the ascendant and if you don't know the degree of the meridian midheaven, then you cannot calculate either equal houses or quadrant houses. The only approach to house division that you could use would be whole sign houses. So therefore, the vast majority of standalone charts could only have used the whole sign house system. And not just like it's kind of close and like maybe you know, it could go either way. It's like the vast, vast majority of charts, obviously from this distribution, only could have used whole sign houses. And I think that's that's pretty straightforward and pretty clear and pretty not ambiguous. It's like that's not even an arguable point looking at this distribution. That being said, additionally, even many of the charts that list the degree of the ascendant or even the degree of the midheaven could also still have used whole sign houses. Because as we'll see when we get to some of the discussions from the technical manuals of astrologers like Vedius Valens or 
uh, Dorotheus or other authors, sometimes even when they had the degrees of the angles calculated, we'll still see them using whole sign houses, but just using those degrees as sensitive points or sometimes as a secondary overlay that they're using in addition to whole sign houses as their primary approach. So even in the instances in that distribution where we're seeing that like 8% of the charts note the rising degree or that 4% note the rising degree and the meridian midheaven degree, we can't even automatically assume that those automatically were just using equal houses or just using quadrant houses, but instead in those instances they may have been using some combination of whole sign houses and quadrant or equal houses as we'll, we'll get into later. One important point to note is that even in the instances where the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the meridian uh, midheaven are mentioned, almost none of the surviving independent standalone charts mention intermediate house cusps or have intermediate house cusps calculated. And that's a big issue because if these are calculated charts that the especially if they're calculated charts that are being calculated ahead of time as a prerequisite for interpretation, then if they were really using or really focused on intermediate house cusps, or at least if that was a common concern that the astrologers were focused on, then you would almost expect that to be calculated more frequently. And instead, they may have just been focused on the degree of the ascendant uh, or the degree even of the meridian midheaven, but not necessarily focused on, on calculating or using them to calculate quadrant houses for the purpose of using intermediate house cusps. So again, all of this is important because these standalone charts are literally the equivalent of like in modern times, uh, a client having a, a printed out chart that they got from an astrologer or a printed out chart that they got from astro.com, which they then take to get interpreted or they then try to interpret themselves. Uh, using the basic principles of astrology. So this is really, when we're looking at this distribution, we're looking at the raw data of the planetary placements and the charts that were being used to interpret people's birth charts and people's lives in Hellenistic astrology. So we have to take that data pretty seriously, I think. Okay, so those are the standalone charts. And at this point, I want to switch to talking about literary charts that survived in textbooks from the ancient astrologers whose works survived, where there's different astrologers like Vedius Valens in the second century, who has over a hundred example charts that he uses in his text, or there's other astrologers like Dorotheus that have maybe, I think it's like a half dozen, it's like eight, seven or eight charts that survive in his text of different birth charts that he uses to demonstrate different concepts. And then look at the distribution of um, what the use of whole sign houses versus equal houses versus quadrant houses is in those textbooks. Okay, so here's an example chart from Vadius Valens. And I believe this is one of the first example charts that he uses in the anthology in book two of the anthology. So he opens up a whole section where he uses a bunch of charts in a row with this example of a notable nativity. And this chart has been dated actually as as this uh, these planetary positions or this alignment of planets occurred on October 25th in the year 50 CE. So Valens says, this is from Schmidt's translation, he says, we will make use of illustrations for the diagnosis of the above matters 
setting a notable nativity at the beginning. Let the sun, and then he gives the, the birth chart positions. He says, let the sun be in Scorpio, the moon in Cancer, Kronos in Aquarius, Zeus in Sagittarius, Ares in Scorpio, Aphrodite in Libra, Hermes in Scorpio, the Ascendant in Libra. And that's it. And then he basically then proceeds to interpret the chart, and he's demonstrating, for the most part, the triplicity rulers of the sect light technique for determining different periods of like support and stability and even eminence during different periods in the person's life. And then he goes on doing the delineations. What's important is that he only gives the position of the ascendant and the rest of the planetary positions by sign, but then he interprets the planets as if they're in different houses using the house, the whole sign house system. So Valens has this is important because Valens has literally over a hundred example charts in the anthology that are exactly like this one, and they all use whole sign houses, with the exception of I think like one or two or maybe three charts when he introduces a different technique, uh, which we'll get into later, where he at one point uses quadrant houses to interpret to determine planetary strength within the context of the length of life technique. He then introduces quadrant houses at that point for the purpose of that, but in the vast majority of his example charts, over a hundred example charts, he only uses whole sign houses. Uh, even later in the anthology, at one point, which we'll get into later, when he starts drawing on an earlier text by an author known as Asclepius, who seems to have introduced the equal house system, and Valens starts seems to be paraphrasing Asclepius and starts talking about the equal house system and using it together with whole sign houses, even though he reports that from the Asclepius text, that approach, in his actual example charts, Valens never demonstrates the use of equal houses in any of them, but instead in over a hundred example charts, he only uses the whole sign house system in basically a bunch of examples that look exactly like this one. So that's super important in terms of understanding the number of charts that survive, not just the standalone charts, but also chart examples from the literary tradition, from the actual textbooks and the case studies of the astrologers where they're interpreting planetary placements in certain houses and they're saying that like for example this example he says that Venus is in the first house because it's in the first whole sign house or it's in the rising sign where he says the moon is in the 10th house because it's in the 10th sign relative to the rising sign and then he gives specific interpretations based on that which would only be true using the whole sign house system that's really important. We have to we have to take him seriously. That that then is clearly his preferred approach in terms of the approaches that he's actually using and demonstrating his usage of in the vast majority of his example charts. So that's an example from Valens. But Valens isn't the only author who survives. The only literary author who has birth charts or example charts in his work. But there's other important authors, for example, like Dorotheus of Sidon, who wrote another very highly influential text that was highly influential in the medieval and as well as the late Hellenistic tradition. And Dorotheus is thought to have written his text sometime around the late first century, so let's say circa 75 CE. 
and that dating is partially based on the fact that he uses a bunch of example charts of people who were born earlier in the first century CE. So here's an example from Dorotheus, and it's been dated to May 2nd or possibly May 3rd. Either of those dates would basically result in the same planetary positions by sign uh, in the year 40 CE. And in the text, Dorotheus, and this is of course in the Arabic translation, or this is the English translation of the Arabic translation, which may have been made from a Persian translation of the original Greek text. So it's gone through a bunch of languages at this point, but for the most part, the planetary positions and the actual data of the birth charts and the examples that he gives are still there. Uh, but in this translation, Dorotheus says, now I assign to you things which I will make clear to you if you have wanted to judge the native in the matter of assets and good fortune. A native was born with the ascendant in Gemini, and the positions of his planets in the circle were according to this image. And then it gives like an image or an illustration with a birth chart, which has uh, the Sun and Venus in Leo, Mercury in Virgo, Saturn and the Moon in Scorpio. Mars in Aquarius, and Jupiter in Taurus. So this is from Benjamin Dykes's more recent translation of Dorotheus from chapter, uh, book one, chapter 24, uh, lines one through four is the example. So again with Dorotheus, he gives the planetary positions only by sign, and uh, he gives the ascendant, more importantly, only by sign but then he actually still proceeds to interpret the planets and uses their house positions as like crucial interpretive principles for the technique that he's trying to demonstrate. Uh, but in doing so, he's using the whole sign house system. So he's using the whole sign house system and he's just calculating the positions of the planets in different signs based on what sign they're in relative to the rising sign or the ascending sign whether it's like the 10th whole sign house or the 5th whole sign house or what have you. So Dorotheus also takes for granted in his actual example charts where he demonstrates the theory, how the theory actually works out in practice in the lives of real individuals in all of his example charts where he uses at least half a dozen example charts, if not more. Uh, in all of them, he demonstrates the consistent use of the whole sign house system. Okay, so when you actually look at the distribution then of literary charts, I went through all of the authors, all of the surviving authors that I could find from the Hellenistic tradition from the first century BC through the sixth century CE. And I calculated up all of the charts and then I counted up which ones only mention the rising sign but do not give a specific degree for the ascendant and do not give a degree for the midheaven. I calculated all of them that list the exact degree of the ascendant, but do not list the degree of the meridian midheaven. And then finally, I calculated all of the literary charts that calculate both the exact degree of the ascendant as well as the exact degree of the meridian midheaven. And the distribution that I came up with is that there were 96 surviving charts that only list the rising sign. Uh, just like the two examples that I just showed from Valens and for, from Dorotheus. And that's approximately 76% uh, of the surviving charts, roughly from the literary charts, only list the rising sign and therefore only could have used whole sign houses 
uh, in terms of the approach to house division that they, they must have been employing because there's no other approach to house division that could have been used besides that. So 76% of the surviving literary charts must have used Holstein houses. When it comes to ones that list the rising degree, there were seven uh, surviving charts that I was able to find that list the exact rising degree or give the degree of the ascendant. Uh, but this was tricky because one of those charts was in Dorotheus where it gives the exact degree of the ascendant, but then in the chart example it proceeds to still use whole sign houses to calculate where the rest of the planets were actually located. So that's again another reason why we have to be careful and we have to understand that even when the exact rising degree was calculated, um, in some instances that does not necessarily mean that the authors were then using equal houses but it could mean that they're still using whole sign houses because sometimes when you're calculating whole sign houses, if the ascendant is really close to the end of the sign or the beginning of a sign, you need to know what specific degree it's in in order to know for sure where the ascendant is located in. So there are instances where even when the astrologer calculates the degree of the ascendant, they may have still been using the whole sign house system. So keep that in mind. Um, one of the things that's notable about the literary charts is that there is a larger percentage in the literary charts that did use or, or did calculate the, both the degree of the ascendant as well as the degree of the midheaven. And there were actually, I was able to find 24 charts in the literary charts that calculated both the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the midheaven. So that ended up being approximately 19% of the, the surviving literary charts compared to 5% that calculated only the ascending degree or 76% that calculated only the rising sign that gave you only the sign of the ascendant and therefore only used whole sign houses. So what conclusions can we draw from that? Um, the first conclusion I would draw from this is that again, the vast majority of the literary charts still used whole sign houses. So the vast majority of the chart examples, like I said, in Vadius Valens, where he uses over a hundred examples, the vast majority of them used whole sign houses. Uh, the vast majority of the charts in Dorotheus used whole sign houses, and the same for most of the rest of the authors. However, quadrant houses do show up more frequently than they did in the distribution of standalone charts. So we are seeing uh, like an uptick in the literary charts in the use of uh, or potential use of quadrant house systems. Because again, um, most of these charts, even when they're calculating the degree of the ascendant and degree of the meridian midheaven, are not calculating intermediate house cusps. Only actually a few, I was only able to find actually a few of them that actually went so far as to calculate the intermediate house cusps explicitly. So in some instances, even those charts that are calculating the degree of the ascendant and degree of the meridian midheaven could still be using whole sign houses. It's just that those are the only instances. It's only those charts that do calculate both the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the mid meridian midheaven that could even possibly calculate quadrant houses at all. So it just sort of opens the door where in those instances they could be using quadrant houses, 
but in many cases we don't know since they're not even calculating intermediate house cusps, and we can't even necessarily take for granted that they were using quadrant houses if they do calculate both the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the meridian, because as we'll see later, there were some astrologers like Valens who advocated calculating whole sign houses, but then still calculating the degree of the meridian as a secondary significator that could import 10th house topics into different whole sign houses that it falls in so that then there was a doubling up of the topics in that whole sign house. And that sounds a little complicated, so we'll put off that discussion till a little bit later, but we'll return to that idea. One of the things that's important to note is that in the distribution of the charts that potentially that could have used quadrant houses where they give both the degree of the ascendant and the degree of the midheaven or meridian midheaven, there's a greater distribution of those or the majority of the ones that I found uh, occurred later in the Hellenistic tradition rather than earlier. So most of the charts that list the meridian midheaven actually come from two sources, which are Rhetorius and Polkus. So basically, the majority of them are from circa 500 CE forward. And this is a little bit tricky because then it raises a question of, well, if the majority, if that bump in the use of quadrant houses is occurring at the very end of the Hellenistic tradition, is this representing then uh, a new development where astrologers in the later Hellenistic tradition started calculating uh, quadrant houses and equal houses more frequently? than what was being done earlier in the Hellenistic tradition? Or is this an issue where uh, it's just something that the astrologers were taking for granted earlier in the Hellenistic tradition and maybe was being done, but we just don't have a lot of surviving evidence or as much surviving evidence from earlier in the Hellenistic tradition of this approach compared to later in the Hellenistic tradition where astrologers like Rhetorius or Polkus were calculating potentially quadrant houses more frequently. So that's a question we have. We don't really fully know the answer. All we know is that the majority of the charts that were potentially using quadrant houses are coming from the end of the Hellenistic tradition, whereas the majority of the example charts from the earlier Hellenistic tradition from authors like Valens and Dorotheus were largely just using whole sign houses. Okay, so what are the overall conclusions that we can draw from the surviving charts as a whole when we combine both the literary charts as well as the standalone charts? I think one conclusion that we can clearly show at this point is that the data shows that whole sign houses was indeed the predominant form of house division uh, in the Hellenistic tradition from roughly the first century BCE through the sixth or seventh century CE. So from roughly basically the beginning of the Roman Empire until roughly the end of the Roman Empire, essentially. This is true both in the standalone charts that just survive, like individual charts on papyrus fragments or what have you, as well as in the literary charts that survive embedded in the astrological manuals. So with that conclusion in mind, it then raises some other subsequent questions about the history of astrology, which is one, how did the other forms of house division, how did the different forms of house division come about? Especially how did, if whole sign houses was the predominant system that was used, how did the other two forms of house division, uh, equal houses and quadrant houses, come about? And secondarily, um, what were those? two other forms of house division actually used for, or how were they used? And was it 
distinct from, or was it in its application, or was it the same as the way that whole sign houses was used? Basically, was there a, a unique application of the quadrant or the equal house systems, or was it just an alternative like it is today, where you have a bunch of different forms of house division that are all basically supposedly doing the same thing? So that's the question that I would like to jump into now at this point in the lecture in attempting to unravel and attempting to provide some answers to. All right, so now I want to transition to talking about the origins of the different approaches to house division and my reconstruction of how I think the different approaches, the three different approaches to house division came about. And basically, how did we get to this place? Not just in ancient astrology, where we can clearly see the potential that there were these three different approaches to house division being used, but also in modern times, how did we end up with the situation that we find ourselves in today as well? So, in order to do this, we have to look primarily at the surviving textual evidence from the astrologers themselves. And one of the things that's important is that in a lot of, in several of the ancient astrologers, they have this sort of like mythologized version of the foundation of Hellenistic astrology, where they often end up attributing it to like a handful of specific authors. So, here's a quote from. Bram's translation of Firmicus Maternus, and Firmicus lived in the fourth uh, century in Rome. So Firmicus says, "We've written in all of these, we've written in all of these books all of the things which Hermes and Hanubius handed down to Asclepius, which Pedasirus and Achepso explained, which Abraham, Orpheus, and Critodemus wrote, and all of the others knowledgeable in this art." So Firmicus is not alone in giving this sort of like mythologized version of the foundations of Hellenistic astrology where he talks about receiving and getting specific technical doctrines like the Thema Mundi and other concepts from the books of these foundational authors such as Hermes, Asclepius, and especially Pedasirus and Nechepso. So in my book, I spend a lot of time making this argument, uh, especially in the historical chapters, like the first few chapters of the book, I end up making this argument about the historical origins of Hellenistic astrology. And I traced the house division issue especially back to three foundational texts that were probably written sometime around the first century BCE, uh, maybe around 100 BCE, give or take. And these three foundational texts seem to have outlined some of the earliest core doctrines of Western astrology. In particular, what's most important for our purposes is they seem to have introduced the technical concept of the 12 houses. Um, I think the first text introduced the concept of the 12 houses. Then there was another text written after that that expanded the concept, and then there was a third text written sometime after that which expanded the concept further. So, in particular, there was a text that was attributed to Hermes Trismegistus that seems to have introduced the original concept of the twelve places or the twelve houses, and it introduced a basic set of significations for the first. For the 12 houses, and it seems to have taken the whole sign house system for granted as its primary approach to house division. 
Then the second text was a text attributed to an author named Asclepius, which introduced the eight-place system. And in this text, it also seems to have introduced equal houses or the equal house system in addition to a, a new or modified set of significations for the first eight houses. And then finally, the third text was attributed to Nechepso and Petasiris. And the Nechepso Petasiris text seems to have had a section that dealt with the length of life technique. And in this treatment of the length of life technique, it seems to have introduced some form of quadrant house system, or at least some form of house division that later authors tended to interpret as quadrant houses when they drew on it for trying to determine the length of life technique. So basically, what we have is three early texts that introduce three different approaches to the house division issue. And this, I think, is where we can trace the origins of the house division debate back to, is having three foundational authors in the Western tradition who were highly influential but all basically introduced what essentially became three somewhat competing approaches to some extent. So the argument for this is basically outlined in chapters 2, 4, 10, and especially chapter 11 of my book, uh, Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune. And I'm saying that now not necessarily to like sell the book, but primarily just to say that because the way that I treat this issue is much more detailed and much more careful and deliberate, um, and I'm able to use a, a lot more footnotes and citations and other things like that in order to outline the argument than what I'm doing here where I'm presenting it in lecture format. So the purpose of this lecture is to present sort of a broad cliff notes version that's like a little bit easier to digest, but I would recommend if you're really serious about not just studying this argument and studying the arguments that I'm making about the origins of the house division issue, but also if anyone's interested in like challenging that, then you should really go back to the book because that's where my primary arguments about this are outlined and, and where I actually substantiate them. Whereas here, I'm just going to try to present the conclusions of some of those arguments to give everyone a broad overview of how I think the house division issue came about. So let's get into these three texts, because um, that's what we really need to understand. So the first text is the Hermes text. So there was some text that was attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. It was probably written around the first century BCE, because the earliest author we know of who mentions it is Thrasyllus. And we know for sure that Thrasyllus died in, I think it was the year 36 CE. So Thrasyllus uh, cites the Hermes text, and he actually quotes or, or paraphrases from it, and he gives he tells us what the Hermes text said in giving a list of significations for the twelve houses. And what's important about this is because Thrasyllus is so early in the early first century CE, that means the text that he was drawing on must have been at least from the previous century. It must have been earlier, at least in the first century BCE, if not a little earlier. So that's why I date the Hermes text to somewhere around, let's say, 100, 100 BCE, because that would be roughly about 100 years prior to Thrasyllus when Thrasyllus cites it. So because Thrasyllus 
cites the Hermes text and he gives a list of significations of the houses, that means that this is actually the earliest list of the significations of the houses that we know of that gives a, a complete set of significations for all 12 houses. And because of that, this may also be not just the earliest one we know of, but it may actually be the original text that originally introduced and came up with the concept of the 12 houses to begin with. And that's essentially my argument that the Hermes text introduced the concept of the 12 houses, and it introduced what looks like a rudimentary set of significations for the 12 houses that must have been the original prototype for whatever this the author of this text thought the 12 houses should mean. So basically, like imagine that the concept of the 12 houses just doesn't exist, but somebody comes up with it at a specific point in time around 100 BCE, and it's like a new technique that this, this guy is sort of inventing. And he's not inventing it, this guy or let's say gal, you know, we have no idea. They're not inventing it out of whole cloth because there were earlier astrological traditions that were using the signs of the zodiac. And we know that there was an earlier Egyptian tradition that was focused on what is essentially the the rising decan and the culminating decan, which is sort of like the ascendant in the midheaven, or it's at least a precursor to the ascendant in the midheaven. So the Hermes, this Hermes guy around 100 BC, they're not in, completely inventing this out of whole cloth, but they are introducing, I think, the intersection of using the concept of the diurnal rotation and the concept of the 12 sign zodiac. And when you do that, and you apply that notion of paying attention to the rising sign, and then the notion that the ascendant or the eastern horizon is marking the rising sign, and that that's becoming the first house, and then you set up the rest of the houses in zodiacal order and counterclockwise order relative to that. So the Hermes text seems to have been taking for granted the concept of whole sign houses, and they introduced a basic set of significations for each of those houses, uh, which is as follows. So according to Thrasylus, Thrasylus says that the Hermes text said that the first house signifies the soul, fortune, way of life, and siblings. And that's one of the, the that last signification of siblings is one of the reasons why I think that this was probably the original text that introduced a set of significations for the houses. Because one of the things that's funny is that some of the later astrologers, while they adopted some of the significations for the Hermes text, they also kind of dropped some of them. Like, for example, the signification of siblings being assigned to the first house was dropped at some point in the future, and astrologers instead focused almost entirely on the third house. Um, so that's one of the ways that I think you can see how this was like a prototype in terms of the significations of the houses, and some later some of the significations basically stuck, and later astrologers continued to follow them even three thousand years later, whereas other significations were dropped during the course of the tradition. In some instances, relatively quickly. All right, so that's the first house. The second house, they give the significations of hopes or expectations. Uh, the third house, Hermes said it signifies actions and siblings. So again, already the Hermes text, it's not just it's assigning siblings to the third house, but also the first house. So the third house significations stick, but the first house significations don't. 
Uh, the fourth house, according to Hermes, signifies slaves, paternal possessions, and the foundation of happiness. The fifth house, it just says good fortune. The sixth house, there's a little unclarity about what it means, but it may what well, the first signification may be demonic fortune. The second signification is punishment, and the other signification given by Hermes is injury for the sixth house. The seventh house, Hermes says, signifies death and also the wife. The eighth house signifies life or livelihood, life and livelihood. The ninth house signifies travel and living abroad. The tenth house signifies, he has a bunch of significations here. It says, fortune, livelihood, life, children, procreation, occupation, esteem, authority, and ruling. The 11th house, it just says good spirit. The 12th house, it says bad spirit, pre-ascension, livelihood, and submission of slaves. So there's two things that are important and interesting about this. Some of these significations, of course, stuck with the tradition. Let's just say some of these significations stuck with the tradition and others were dropped. Some of them were just moved to different houses, as we'll see in a minute. But one of the things that I think is already being taken for granted here is the concept of the 12 joys. And I think that's how, on the one hand, the names of some of the houses are being assigned. So for example, the fifth house being assigned, being called good fortune, the 11th house being said to be good spirit, and the 12th house being called bad spirit, that's probably because the Hermes text was already taking for granted the notion that the fifth house was the joy of Venus, the 11th house was the joy of Jupiter, and the 12th house was the joy of Saturn. So if you've seen any of my other lectures or my paper on the planetary joys, you understand that the planetary joys scheme is actually an incredibly important and incredibly interesting uh, conceptual model that a bunch of different concepts were derived from. So some of the significations of the houses come from the planetary joys, the assignment of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water to the signs of the zodiac actually seems to have been imported over from the joys scheme into the zodiacal scheme. And I have a whole paper on the planetary joys that's about that. I also talk about it in my book at one point. There's a bunch of stuff that comes from the planetary joys scheme. And the fact that the Hermes text already seems to be taking the joys scheme for granted implicitly, because I think arguably it's pretty clear that the names of the houses are clearly derived from the planetary joys scheme. The fact that the Hermes text is already taking the joys scheme, uh, joys scheme for granted, I think means that this is the earliest reference to the planetary joys scheme that exists in the Hellenistic tradition textually, which also then I think means arguably could mean that the Hermes text was the original text in which that scheme of the planetary joys was introduced. So the Hermes, whoever authored the Hermes text and used the pen name of Hermes Trismegistus may have been the person that actually came up with the planetary joys scheme. And then some of the significations of the houses that they developed then were based on that. And one of the ways that I think I can actually validate that argument is that's the reason why siblings kind of weirdly get assigned to the first house in the Hermes scheme. And I think it's because according to the planetary joys, Mercury has its joy in the first house. 
And in Valens and other authors like Dorotheus, one of the significations of Mercury is brothers or siblings. So it's Hermes may have been taking for granted that Mercury was assigned to the first house, and therefore that's one of the reasons why it would have assigned siblings to the first house because it was drawing significations from the planetary joys scheme as part of the conceptual model of this early attempt to assign significations to the houses. So the other thing that the Hermes text seems to be taking for granted is the idea of uh, what we call today angularity, or the idea that there's angular and succedent and cadent houses. And it seems like the Hermes text must have not just introduced the planetary joys scheme, but it also may have introduced the concept of angularity as well. So again, here's just a diagram showing we all know from just like a basic 101 Western astrology, even in modern times, that the four angular houses are the first, fourth, seventh, and tenth. The four succedent houses are the second, fifth, eighth, and eleventh. And the four cadent houses are the third, sixth, ninth, and twelfth. So I think the Hermes text was already taking this for granted and may have introduced and discussed this concept of angularity potentially as the first text to do so in the Western tradition. So there's that, and there's also the planetary joy scheme. Here is the actual full diagram of the planetary joy scheme that I meant to show earlier, where according to this scheme, Mercury is assigned the first house and is said to rejoice there, or the first house is said to be the house associated with Mercury. The moon is said to have its joy in the third house, and the third house is like likewise called the name given to the third house is that it's said to be the place of goddess. And this is opposite to the ninth house, which is said to be the place where the sun rejoices, and the name given to the ninth house is called the place of God. The fifth house is assigned to Venus, and the fifth is said to be the place of good fortune. And this is opposite to the eleventh house, which is said to be the place of Jupiter, and that is said to be the place of good spirit. The sixth house is assigned to Mars, and it's called the place of bad fortune. And the twelfth house is assigned to Saturn and is called the place of bad spirit. So this is the planetary joys scheme and the assignment of some of the planets to those seven houses. And what I have it combined with here is the names that were commonly given to the houses, including some of the names that were used in the Hermes text. Like remember in the Hermes text, he specifically called it the fifth place of good fortune, the eleventh place of good spirit, and the twelfth place of bad spirit. I think it's pretty clear when you look at the planetary joys scheme and the names of the place of those specific places that the names of the places are being derived from the planetary joys. Like the fifth is the place of good fortune because Venus is assigned there, or the twelfth is the place of bad spirit because Saturn is assigned there, for example. So therefore, that's where that's why I can make the inference that if the Hermes text is already using those specific names for those houses, like good fortune, good spirit, bad spirit, then the planetary joys scheme must have been introduced by that point already as well, and therefore the Hermes text may have in fact been the first text to introduce that specific scheme. All right, so and in terms of angularity, a lot of the early authors, when they talk about angularity, they have a tendency to talk about it in terms of angular succedent or cadent zodiacal signs. 
So they have a tendency to talk about it within the context of Holstein houses, basically. Whereas in the later tradition, once the later tradition moved away from Holstein houses, it tends to talk about the houses themselves as being angular cadence and succedent. Whereas in the earlier Hellenistic tradition, the closer, the further and further you go back and the closer you get to the Hermes text, the more they have a tendency to talk about the angularity and make it seem like it's a property of the zodiacal signs. And that's because if they're using whole sign houses as their primary form of house division, which as we've already seen, most of the astrologers were in both the literary charts and the standalone charts, then angularity within a whole sign context is something that is assigned to the zodiacal signs. So for example, the uh, philosopher and astrology commentator Olympiodorus, who wrote a commentary on the introductory astrology text of Paulus Alexandrinus, when he talks about angularity, he talks about it and even gives an example within the context of the signs of the zodiac. So here's the quote. He says, the succedents are taken from the angles. For since there are four angles, the ascendant, midheaven, setting, and subterraneous, one must know that the leading zodiacal sign, and here it uses the term zodion, for each angle is called a decline. The one which is following the angle is a succedent, such as for the nativity of the cosmos, so it's talking about the theme Mundi, let Cancer mark the hour, Aries culminate, Capricorn set, and let the subterraneous pivot be Libra. Pisces is the decline of Aries, Taurus is the succedent, Leo is the succedent of Cancer, and Gemini is the decline, since Cancer is following. One must take it in the same way for each nativity, and those following from the angles are called succedents but those leading are called declines. So again, he's trying to explain the concept of angularity here, but he's doing it entirely in a, a sign-based framework where he's saying that the ascendant itself, he's giving an example where he says the ascendant is cancer. So he's saying the entire sign itself of cancer, because it contains the ascendant, becomes the ascendant and essentially becomes the first house. Because um, one of the things that you have to get used to that's unique when you're reading authors like Valens or Dorotheus is when they say ascendant, sometimes they're talking about the entire rising sign. And usually when they're talking specifically about the degree of the ascendant, they'll actually qualify the statement and they'll say the ascendant by degree or something like that. And similarly, often when Valens or Dorotheus say midheaven, they're talking about the entire 10th whole sign house and they're not necessarily talking about the degree of the midheaven unless they, and when they are, they actually will go out of their way to qualify the statement. So it's really important to pay attention to Olympiodorus because when we're coming from a modern or a later traditional standpoint, when they start talking about angularity, well, we normally would be inclined to assume that they're talking about like quadrant houses and the exact degree of angles. But in fact, if you pay attention to the actual words of what they're saying, they're often talking about angularity within the context of zodiacal signs, so that the four angles are the four angular whole sign houses. So the rising sign, the fourth whole sign house, the seventh whole sign house, and then the tenth whole sign house. 
And then the cadent house is the zodiacal sign that become that comes before the angular house. So that would be like the twelfth house comes before the first house, and that's why it's a decline or why it's a cadent house because it's moving away from the angle. Or the third house is moving away from the fourth house, and that's why the third house is a declining zodiacal sign. Or uh, so on and so forth. The sixth house and the ninth house are the other two declining signs, which in this context are signs of the zodiac that are declining relative to the angular zodiacal signs. Whereas the succeedant houses are the signs of the zodiac that come after the angles or will rise up towards the angles, and that's what gives them their property of being succeedant is this notion of like rising up towards the angles. So that's how Olympiodorus defines angularity. This is important because in some of the other citations of the Hermes text, when it talks about when it uses a, a very important technical concept known as the concept of planets being crematisticos, which means um, advantageous or conducive to business, uh, it can also mean busy. Uh, the Hermes text seem to have defined that concept, and, and crematisticos is basically the concept of what we call today like angularity or planets being more active or more busy. When the Hermes text defined angularity, in some of the citations we have, like by Thrasyllus, it talks about it within the context of zodiacal signs. So here's a quote from Thrasyllus where he cites a, the text by another author named Timaeus, and Timaeus, the Timaeus text itself evidently cited Hermes. And the text says, following Timaeus, they say that seven zodiacal signs lend themselves to the conduct of advantageous business. I mean, the four pivots, those are the four angles, which are the hour marker, which is the ascendant or the rising sign, and midheaven and descendant and anti-midheaven. So there it's saying the, uh, the rising sign, the tenth whole sign house, the seventh whole sign house, and the fourth whole sign house. Then it says, and also the two trigonal figures to the hour marker. So the two, it's saying the two signs that are trying to the rising sign, which are the fifth whole sign house and the ninth whole sign house. And then it says, and also the pre the post ascension of the midheaven, which would be the uh, the succeeding house after the midheaven, which would be the eleventh whole sign house. Then it says the remaining signs are without ability to bring advantage. So that would be like the twelfth house and the sixth house and the eighth house and so on and so forth. So basically, this is Hermes's explanation for basically why some of the houses are positive and some of the houses are negative. And it's applying that within a sign-based, or in other words, a whole sign house framework. So here's a diagram. Um, Part of the underlying rationale for this, which gets explicated in later authors like Firmicus Maternus when they try to explain why some of the houses are positive and why some of them are negative, that's basically coming from the early foundational authors like Hermes, is they explain that it has to do with the configuration that those signs have, those whole sign houses have to the first whole sign house. So for example, if the sign of, of cancer is rising, and the cancer is the first house, and the first house represents the body and the spirit of the native, 
than any of the houses that aspect the first house by a major aspect, which is a sextile, square, trine, or opposition, are going to be considered uh, good houses or positive houses that are somehow supportive of the native, and therefore those houses are assigned positive significations for the most part. Whereas any of the houses that don't aspect the rising sign by one of the major aspects are seen to be not supportive of the native and therefore are given neg negative significations. So this is why uh, the sixth house is illness, the eighth house later became death, and the twelfth house is sometimes associated with loss. It's because those houses are in aversion to or do not aspect the rising sign. So this is important because we can see that some of the early authors that are coming up as significations of the houses, especially the Hermes text, are doing so within the context of a whole sign house or a sign-based framework where they're talking about angularity and the positiveness or negativeness of the houses within the context of the zodiacal signs, and therefore it's taking for granted a whole sign house framework. So this is probably then the reason why uh, so many of the early, not just early texts, but why so many of the later astrological texts, uh, both the literary text by authors like Dorotheus and Valens, as well as the um, standalone birth charts are taking whole sign houses for granted, it's probably because the Hermes text itself, which was probably the original text that introduced the first set of significations for the 12 houses, was itself taking the whole sign house framework for granted and using that as its primary approach. And this then explains why so many of the later Hellenistic authors used whole sign houses as their primary approach as well, because they were following what was essentially the original tradition or the original system that was outlined in the, the initial text that introduced the 12 houses as like an idea or a new technique. So naturally, especially early in a tradition, when an author introduces a new technique and it takes off and, and later astrologers adopt it, they'll tend to stick relatively closely, at least initially, to the foundational approach that's outlined by the author who introduced the technique. And in this context, that seems to explain the um, prevalence of whole sign houses in the Hellenistic tradition, especially the earlier and earlier you go. All right, so we've talked about the Hermes text. I now want to transition into talking about the second text, which is the Asclepius text. And I think that the Hermes text was the first text that introduced the idea of the 12 houses, and it introduced a set of significations for the 12 houses that the Hermes text thought made sense to them and provided sort of a foundation for that new technique of using a birth chart and assigning different topics or different areas of life to different sectors of the chart based on 12 whole sign houses. But then at some point after that, there was another author that came along that wrote another text, a second text, and they attributed it to Asclepius, who is like a mythological figure in both the um, Greek tradition as well as in the Egyptian tradition. And the Asclepius text did a few things. One of the things that it did is it seems to have introduced an alternative set of significations for uh, just the first eight houses. 
and this is referred to consistently in different authors in the Hellenistic tradition as the octatropos, which if you translate it literally, it means eight turning. So the name of the system may have been the eight turning. There's some spelling variants which may indicate that it was referred to as the eight the octotopos, which would mean eight place system. Uh, but it's not clear if that's just a like a typo or something like that. At the very least, we do know that some of the text refer to it as the eight turning system. So um, it introduced a set of significations for the first eight houses. And what I mean by that is this. So here's a diagram which lists the significations of the octotropos that's attributed to Asclepius by several later authors. Um, and what it is is it seems to have been like an alternative set of significations. Um, some some early 20th century scholarship uh, they came across the octotropos um, and they thought mistakenly that it was a different approach to house division where you were dividing the entire chart up into eight segments. Uh, but that's not actually what it was, but instead it just seems to have been an alternative set of significations for the first eight houses. So according to the Asclepius text, the first house is said to signify life, the second house is said to signify livelihood, the third house is said to signify siblings, the fourth house signifies parents, the fifth house children, the sixth house injury, the seventh house wife, and the eighth house signifies fortune and death. So one of the things that's interesting about the significations of the houses according to the Asclepius text is that it actually modifies some of the significations from the Hermes text that were introduced earlier, and it moves them around. So for example, we can see that death was moved from the seventh house, where it was in the Asclepius text, and it's moved over to the eighth house. So what's interesting about that is that um, the later astrological tradition, you'll see in some of the early authors like Thrasyllus and Antiochus that they present the uh, Hermes significations separately from the Asclepius significations for the, the, the eight-place system basically and the 12-place system. And it's clear in the early authors like Antiochus and Thrasyllus that these are two separate systems or two separate texts that are being um, drawn on, so like two separate streams. But in later authors like Vadius Valens, who's like a couple cent a century or two later, they'll tend to just synthesize and merge those two sets of significations into one approach. Uh, and what's funny is that the later authors tended to side with Asclepius in following his modifications of the Hermes system for some reason, so that later authors tend to eventually drop the associations of the seventh house with death, which was in the sort of Hermes, the prototypical set of significations in the Hermes text, and instead they'll tend to assign death to the eighth house, which is following the Asclepius text. So basically in a number of instances, those modifications of the system that were introduced by Asclepius seem to have taken off and have been adopted by the later tradition for whatever reason. Um, so death is moved from the seventh to the eighth. Um, in other instances, though, we can see that the Asclepius text 
it didn't reject the significations from Hermes, but instead it just um, retained some of those significations. So for example, the Hermes text attributes injury to the sixth house, and the uh, Asclepius text likewise attributes injury to the sixth house. So the Hermes text attributes the wife or the spouse to the seventh house, and the Asclepius text similarly attributes the wife or the spouse to the seventh house. So in some instances, even though it modified some significations, there were others that it seems to have retained and not changed at all. Uh, there's been speculations, like Schmidt speculated that or noted that one of the things that's unique about the Asclepius significations is it introduces different family members. It basically introduces all of the family members by introducing parents to the fourth house and children to the fifth house so that you have the native's entire family indicated by the um, set of significations by Asclepius, where you have uh, siblings, parents, children, and wife or spouse. And that may, be, may have been part of the motivation for the Asclepius text introducing this alternative set of significations was introducing uh, the main different uh, players, the main different family members in a person's life, and making it so that astrologers could access you know, what specific house to look for if you needed to answer questions about the parents or the children or the siblings or what have you. So that was like there's a conceptual or a practical motivation then for why we would understand why the Asclepius text would want to introduce an alternative set of significations that modifies or adds to some of the Hermes significations. And it also then explains how or why some of the later astrologers would have merged the Hermes and Asclepius systems because there were like good points from both of them, and there were pieces of both that made sense. So the later astrologers tended to just take the best parts that made the most sense to them and merge those into one approach, even though they were introduced separately originally. So the other thing that the Asclepius text seems to have done that's interesting is that it seems to have outlined the concept of equal houses. So it's not just that it introduced an alternative set of significations to the first, first eight houses, but it also seems to have introduced an alternative approach to house division as well. And we can see this because in both Valens and Firmicus, uh, they seem to mention equal houses, especially within the context or in connection with the Asclepius material. So basically, in Valens, for example, it's only in this one chapter when he starts talking about Asclepius that all of a sudden he introduces the equal house system, which he never has talked about before up to that point. And similarly, Firmicus um, seems to put a lot of emphasis on Asclepius as a major author who he says wrote about and contributed a lot to the doctrine of the concept of the 12 houses. And Firmicus is one of the unique authors who also introduces the equal house system in his text. So by reading the texts of Firmicus and Valens and studying those sections where they talk about both the equal house system as well as Asclepius, one of the things that you can see is that they both um, seem to be attempting to use both whole sign houses and equal houses at the same time in those passages or in those chapters. And this seems to imply that the Asclepius text 
actually tried to use both whole sign houses and equal houses at the same time. So what I've taken from this and, and my sort of understanding at this point is that the Hermes text seems to have introduced you know, the significations for the 12 houses or a rudimentary set, and it was taking whole, the whole sign house system for granted. Then the Asclepius text comes along and it introduces an alternative set of significations for the first eight houses, and it's taking to some extent whole sign houses for granted, but it's also adding an ad additional modification by also trying to use equal houses at the same time. So it's integrating both a sign-based framework for house division as well as a degree-based framework for house division, which is what equal house houses introduce that, that introduces that's kind of unique or worthwhile, as we saw earlier when we were talking about the different approaches to house division. So it's not really clear to me if when it starts using when the Asclepius text uses both whole sign houses as a foundation and then also equal houses on top of that as a secondary degree-based framework, it's not clear to me in the original source text that guys like Firmicus or Valens or even potentially Rhetorius were drawing on if the Asclepius text used the secondary equal house framework for uh, for topics, for like um, you know, first house is body, second house is finances, third house is siblings, and so on and so forth, or if it was only using that secondary framework for planetary strength to indicate which planets were more prominent in certain zodiacal signs. And we'll see kind of arguments for both approaches where you could make either interpretation later when I cite one of the texts that seems to have been drawing on the Asclepius text for its delineations. So um, actually, I think we'll turn to that right now. All right, so here's one of the passages. Here's the passage, the primary passage. It's not the entire thing, but here's the passage where Valens seems to be drawing on this lost text attributed to Asclepius when he introduces the concept of equal houses. And um, I should I meant to mention earlier that what sucks is that a lot of this is a reconstruction of what happened in the early Hellenistic tradition because we've actually lost, they didn't survive, the foundational texts by the foundational authors like Hermes and Asclepius and Nechepso and Pedasiris. All we have is like references or allusions or sometimes little fragments of those texts that survive in quotations by later authors like Valens, but we don't have the full texts themselves to actually study to know exactly what they said, which is really frustrating because then it means you have to do a lot of sometimes there's inferences and sometimes you have to like triangulate and piece together what different authors are saying about the text that they are drawing on in order to infer what the original source text said. Uh, but here's when Valens starts talking about, just before he introduces equal houses, he mentions Asclepius, and he says that Asclepius contributed a lot to the doctrine of the houses, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about equal houses. And this is what he says. He says, first of all, it's necessary to calculate the positions of the places in degrees count from whatever point has been determined to be the ascendant until you have completed the 30 degrees of the first place, and this will be the place of life. Then proceed until you've completed another 30 degrees, the place of livelihood. Continue in the order of signs. And then I have this part underlined because this is important, and this is actually a sentence that 
I've noticed um, proponents of quadrant houses and other degree-based forms of house division are often attempting to overlook when they talk about Valens introducing uh, equal houses in this passage is they tend to not mention the point where Valens here evidently says that you should pay attention to both whole sign houses and equal houses at the same time. So here's the sentence it says right after that it says often two places will fall in one sign and will indicate both qualities according to the number of degrees each one occupies. Likewise examine in which sign the ruler of the sign is and which place it controls according to its degree position in the horoscope. And then it goes on, but then the text, unfortunately, it starts giving delineations and the text becomes garbled so that we don't know how completely how it went because then it just starts giving random delineations and then it jumps to like talking about something that sounds like secondary progressions and it's clear that the manuscripts just kind of just kind of got messed up at that point but what's important here is i think valens is drawing on and is summarizing a, a discussion that occurred in the asclepius text when the Asclepius text must have introduced the concept of equal houses, but here it's saying that sometimes when you're doing equal, when you're calculating equal houses, that you're going to get this doubling up of both an equal house and a whole sign house. And what it says is that it will indicate both qualities according to the number of degrees each one occupies. And what, what we're seeing there, I think, is an indication of using both whole sign houses and equal houses at the same time, and that must have been the approach the Asclepius text advocates. And that's something that I talk about and demonstrate pretty extensively, this idea of a doubling up of forms of house division uh, recurs, not just uh, in Valens, but also in other authors like Rhetorius and Firmicus, if you go through their delineation material where they delineate planets in houses. Um, and I think I have an example of that here in a second. So one of the questions we have is if Asclepius is introducing equal houses at this point, like why is he doing that or what is the motivation for doing that? And I think there may be some earlier historical justification of this if you go back to the idea that the ancient Egyptians were focusing on the rising Deccan and the culminating Deccan, because when you're doing that, it's basically marking out a 10 degree space. So a, de a Deccan is like 10 degrees, and that's indicating like a 10 degree space by the rising degree and a 10 degree space by the culminating degree. And that's very close as an approximation to what you're doing in equal houses when you identify the degree of the ascendant and you say that's the beginning of the first house and you identify the degree of the nonagesimal, the, the 90 degree point upwards and say that that's the midheaven and that's the beginning of the 10th uh, equal house. So in actuality, if we there's a, a very short passage, but it's a very important passage that survives from Hephaestio, where he starts talking about what the ancient Egyptians did with the Deccans. And in, in this text, which is apparently referred to as the Salmesha Koinaka, or something approximating that, uh, which the title, nobody knows what the title means. There's pages and pages of scholars for about a century now who've been trying to make different arguments about what the title actually means and nobody really knows. I mean there's different 
arguments that might be more or less correct, but we're not really sure. Anyways, this text, Hephaestio, who wrote sometime around 415 CE, cites this text on the Deccans. We tend to think that this was a text that originated sometime around the 1st or 2nd century BCE and may have been a precursor to Hellenistic astrology. It may have represented what the the Egyptians were doing with the Deccans very late in their tradition. And if that's true, what they were doing is they were using uh, what what's almost like a whole Deccan house system. So instead of a whole sign house system, they were using something similar with the Deccans, the 36 Deccans, uh, but using those 36 10-degree asterisms. And here's the quote from Hephaestio. He says, and one must also examine the decans, since the first decan of the ascendant deals with birth. The 28th decan from the ascendant, which culminates early, deals with livelihood. Uh, then he goes on, the 25th, which culminates at noon, deals with sickness. The 19th, which rises late in the east, deals with injury. The 17th, which rises in the west, deals with marriage and wives. The 8th, the door of Hades deals with children, and the one in the subterraneous angle deals with death. These are the places that the ancient Egyptians used in every nativity. So this is really important because even though the dating of this text is actually really difficult and we're not fully sure where it comes from, like what time period it comes from, scholars generally think that it comes from sometime around the first few centuries BCE, which would make it legitimately early, like super early, just before the Hellenistic tradition, towards the very end of the basically the Egyptian astrological tradition before Hellenistic astrology comes on the scene, if that dating is at all correct, the assignment of significations to the Deccans shows what the um, precursor was in terms of the Egyptian contribution to the concept of the houses, because it means that they were identifying the rising decan or the decan that the ascendant, let's say, was located in and saying that that was the first decan and that it signified birth. And then they said that the 28th decan, which would be um, exactly 90 degrees upwards, roughly coinciding with the nonagesimal degree, they said that that decan would signify livelihood which is very close in terms of significations to the 10th house meetings that came about later that also had to do with like one's career or one's occupation. Then they said that the 19th decan, which would roughly coincide with where the descendant is, uh, indicates injury. And remember in the Hermes text, it assigned uh, death to the descendant or the seventh house, the seventh whole sign house. So that could be sort of the contribution that the um, Egyptian Deccan tradition made to the Hermes text in influencing that idea of the descendant where the sun sets each day, indicating something about like bodily harm or death. And then finally, it says that the 10th Deccan, which would roughly coincide with the equal house IC, so 90 degrees from the ascendant, but this time downwards, they said that that signified death. So I'm bringing this up because if this is true, it indicates that there was a pre-existing tradition that was focusing on what is essentially the um, the four angular 
decans in this instance, or let's say the four angles, but it was doing it in an equal house context because it was saying that it was assigning the the first decan, the tenth decan, the nineteenth decan, and the twenty-eighth decan to those places. And those would always coincide with what is essentially the four equal house angles. So that could have been part of the earlier um, sort of historical precedent for the Asclepius text eventually generating a tradition where it's using equal houses and it's focusing on those four angular degrees as being the starting point for the four angles instead of focusing on the entire whole sign house or maybe in addition to focusing on the entire whole sign house. One of the things to take into account here and keep in mind is it's focusing on those four angles, but it's not clear. It's not like trisecting the arc between them or something like that. This is a pre-12-fold house division approach where it's setting up 36 sectors or 36, let's say, houses measured relative to the rising decan. And the other thing that's really interesting about it is that it's, like I said earlier, it's like a whole decan approach because whatever um, whatever decan the ascendant is located in, that entire decan is said to signify the topic of birth, or whatever decan the descendant is located in, that entire ten degree range is said to signify injury, or whatever degree the equal house midheaven is located in, that entire 10 degree range is said to signify livelihood. So again, this is really important because it's showing if this is genuinely early, if this text, the Salmesha Koinaka Koinaka was is genuinely early, then it's showing that um, the idea of the angles marking certain signs like they do in the whole sign house system where the the ascendant degree or the rising degree marks the rising sign, and then that entire sign takes on the topics of the first house. We're seeing that there was already a precedent there in the Egyptian tradition with this sort of like whole decan approach, where the rising decan becomes the first decan that signifies birth, and then the rest of the decans have certain qualities based on their position relative to the rising decan. But it's not just focusing on a degree based approach, it's focusing on both. Kind of like a degree, but also an entire range of degrees that contains that angle. So I think from this, we can almost start to get a sense of why the Asclepius text then might be trying to merge both the whole sign approach as well as the equal house approach, because it might have been drawing on this earlier Egyptian tradition that was also kind of taking into account both. Uh, degrees as well as the entire range of the 10 degree range of the Deccan as well. All right, and finally, we come to the third text, which is the Nechepso Pedasiris text. And what happened with the Nechepso Pedasiris text is in the lineage given by Firmicus Maternus, um, Nechepso and Pedasiris are below Hermes and Asclepius. So if that chronological sort of order is correct at all that's not just from Firmicus but also there's other authors that report it then it's like the Asclepius text comes first or the the Hermes text comes first then we have the Asclepius text and then we have the Nechepsopetasiris text and the Nechepsopetasiris text introduced a bunch of things and it seems to have been widely cited and seems to have become very influential in the ancient world 
Unfortunately, it doesn't survive. We only have some fragments and quotations and allusions to it in later authors. But despite that, one of the techniques that it seems to have introduced or seems to have talked about that was incredibly influential is the Nechepsopetasuris text seems to have outlined what became the common length of life technique that was used in later Hellenistic astrologers by astrologers like Valens and Ptolemy and Dorotheus and uh, Manetho and lots of other authors, basically. And this technique of basically for determining how long a person would live utilized primary directions. And in the technique, it was kind of like a twofold technique where one part of the technique involved uh, calculating a predominator. And then once you had de determined the predominator or the planet that was capable of representing the life force of the native, you would then use primary directions to direct that planet or to advance it or move it around the chart until it hit the rays of malefics, especially like a hard aspect, like a conjunction or a square or opposition with a malefic. And when that happened, um, it would indicate a crisis in the native's life in terms of their physical vitality and the potential for the native to exit their life and to die at that time. So that was like one part of the technique. And the other part of the technique is um, once you find the predominator to use it to identify the master of the nativity, and once you find the master of the nativity, the, the condition of that planet based on the sign and the house and the other things that have to do with its condition would indicate a certain number of years that the native might live. And if that number of years lined up with the number of years that you get from directing the predominator, then there's a higher degree of likelihood according to the ancient technique or the ancient tradition that the native could die at that time once that number of years is up, basically. So this is something I go into a little bit more. I talked about more back in episode 205 in the podcast episode on the master of the nativity and in terms of outlining part of that technique and, and part of what it was used for to calculate the overall ruler of the chart. Um, anyways, in this technique, because they were trying to figure out the strongest planet in the chart that could indicate the life force or the vitality of the native, and then they would use primary directions to move that planet forward in the chart till it, until it hit the rays of malefics, um, they, they seem to have been focused primarily on the concept of angularity in order to determine which planet was the predominating planet that you should start from in order to use primary directions. So most of the technique most of the texts at this point when you go to when you read book 3 of Vedius Valens or when you read I believe it's in book 3 of Ptolemy uh, both of them when they get to the chapter where they introduce the length of life technique uh, up to that point for the most part they've been using whole sign houses that entire time and even after that Valens will continue using whole sign houses so we're already up to like book three of the anthology by the time Valens introduces the length of life technique, and he's already used dozens of birth charts as examples all throughout book two of the anthology. And in every single one of them, he's used whole sign houses up to this point. But then all of a sudden, when Valens gets to the length of life technique, he stops and there's a digression, and he introduces for the very first time 
the concept of quadrant houses. Uh, so this is really important because it's at this point that Valen switches to and introduces quadrant houses for the first time. And he even uses, I think, at least one example chart, one or two example charts to demonstrate how to calculate quadrant houses and how to use them within the context of the length of life technique. But then after that point, once Valens, once Valens is done with the length of life technique, he never introduces and never uses quadrant houses again in any other example charts. He reverts back to using whole sign houses. And even though he also mentions equal houses at some point later in the anthology, he never actually ends up using equal houses in any of his 100 plus example charts. So what that means is that in the vast majority of chart examples by Valens, in like 98 or 99% of the chart examples, he uses whole sign houses except in this one chapter on the length of life technique where he suddenly introduces quadrant houses and he uses at least one example chart to demonstrate how quadrant houses work in order to determine which planet is the most angular and in order to therefore uh, determine the predominating planet that you then direct using primary directions for the length of life technique. So why is this important? Um, it's not just important for Valens, but what's weird is that Ptolemy does almost the exact same thing, where all throughout Ptolemy's text, he sometimes refers to the houses in passing, and he seems to take for granted whole sign houses a number of times when he'll refer to, in certain passages, he'll refer to the houses as if they're zodiacal signs which is kind of weird from a modern standpoint, but it makes total sense if you understand that he's taking uh, whole sign houses for granted, just like, just like Valens was doing and just like Dorotheus and other Hellenistic astrologers are doing, that Valens is taking whole sign houses for granted as his primary form of house division. But then when he gets to the length of life technique, um, suddenly he introduces for the first time an alternative form of house division and according to the two primary translators of Ptolemy in modern times, uh, or two primary scholars of Hellenistic astrology, one of them is Robert Schmidt, who translated books one, three, and four of Ptolemy, and the other was James Holden, one of the great historians of astrology who passed away just a few years ago. They both said that Ptolemy seems to introduce equal houses at this point in his discussion when he's talking about the length of life technique. So what we have then is a little bit of a, a, a difference because there's a similarity, but there's also a difference. So even though they're both introducing two different forms of house division with Valens apparently introducing quadrant houses, and he specifically outlines porphyry houses at this point, and then Ptolemy potentially introducing equal houses, the commonality is that both of them are introducing some form of degree-based form of house division within the context of this technique. So there's probably reasons for that, but part of the reason I think is that this must have been what, in the original Netshepso Petasiris text that introduced the length of life technique, because all of the authors seem to be drawing on this Nechepso Petasiris text for the discussion of the length of life technique, it must have introduced uh, the technique and it must have introduced some degree-based form of house division at this point in order to determine which planets were angular or which planets were prominent. 
Uh, so I think the reason for this is because planets that are getting close to the degree of, let's say, the ascendant are getting prepared to rise, or if they're getting close to the meridian midheaven, they're getting ready to culminate. If they're getting close to the degree of the descendant, they're getting close to set, and so on and so forth. So what this does is it ends up creating a range of degrees that are more powerful where the planets are rising into positions of prominence in the chart. And I think this may have been why some authors interpreted and followed the Nechepso and Petasiris texts like Valens in introducing quadrant houses at this point. And it's because when planets are rising up towards the degrees of the angles and they're within a few degree range of those, they're rising up towards positions of prominence. So when a planet hits the degree of the ascendant, of course, it rises up over the eastern horizon and it emerges from under the earth. Whereas when a planet is rising up and is moving towards the degree of the midheaven, the meridian midheaven, it's rising up towards the spot of its highest elevation in the sky. So originally in some of the early authors like Valens, uh, like Valens and Antiochus, they seem to almost like paraphrase the Petasiris text. And when they do so, they're just talking about the angles using this very vague uh, directional language that has to do with like east and west and north and south and other terms like that. And it almost seems as if the original source text may not have necessarily outlined very clearly what specific degree-based form of house division should be used, but instead it originally just outlined a sort of loose range of degrees right after the angles, the degrees of the angles that were said to be powerful or potent. But then later authors tended to standardize that into other alternative full-fledged forms of quadrant house division, such as porphyry houses and alchemicious houses. I'm not going to go into that in detail because I actually go into that in the book, so I'll just leave that discussion for there because it's kind of complicated. But uh, let's keep moving forward. So I think what happened is that the original length of life technique was probably introduced in the Petasiris text. It seems to have used, based on the um, the sort of paraphrase of some of the same rules that are in both Valens and Antiochus, when they start, as well as Porphyry, so three texts, when they start explaining how to calculate the predominator. So the, there's three texts when they explain how to start calculating the predominator, they all start giving very similar rules that uses this sort of ambiguous directional language when it refers to the houses. So it said things like declining in the west or rising up in the east and other language like that. And we can see in authors like Valens that they Valens will have a tendency to just convert that into normal language, like saying first house, seventh house, eleventh house, and so on and so forth. But in Antiochus and Porphyry, they actually retain the vagueness of that directional language. And I think the vagueness of that directional language is actually what led to different variants in the later tradition because there may have been an open question about what the original author meant when they were trying to describe how to use this technique. So basically, different interpretations of the original source text of Petasiris 
may have led to variations in the later tradition. And I think this is why Valens, for example, when he's doing the length of life technique at this point, he introduces porphyry houses and says that this is what you're supposed to use for the length of life technique. Whereas Ptolemy at this point, when he's talking about the length of life technique, he introduces what seems to be equal houses. And that seems to be his preferred method of um, degree-based form of house division at that point in time. I think it has to do with just differing interpretations of what the core source text meant and different astrologers thinking that the original author meant different things. The primary thing that I think tripped them up from a textual standpoint is questions about whether East and West should be interpreted very strictly or whether it should be interpreted more generally. So the the authors were asking themselves questions about like what does the original Pedasiris text mean by East and West? So remember that I said that it used ambiguous directional language. And this is important because if a text is saying East or West, uh, we, we know that the ascendant is always roughly due East and the descendant is always roughly due West. But the issue is that um, the degree of the meridian midheaven, like I said earlier, is actually the dividing line in indicating not just North and South, but also it's the dividing line between East and West. So if your core source text, like the Pedasiris text, was saying, was using directional language and saying east versus west in order to, cal to calculate where the predominator is, then this could be the reason why this could be the reason why some authors like Valens switched to quadrant houses in that instance, because that would be the only system that would tell you precisely when a planet is in the eastern uh, half of the chart versus when it switches over to the western half of the chart. Um, it would only be the quadrant house system that would be truly correct from a directional standpoint. Um, so that may be part of the reason. There may have been other authors like Ptolemy who may have felt like east and west just pertain to the ascendant and the descendant. So instead of taking east and west super literally, and saying that you must only use the degree of the meridian midheaven to demarcate that, he may have just used equal houses as a general degree-based form of house division, since he knew you were supposed to use some form of degree-based house division, but equal houses may have been sufficient, or he may have felt that that's sufficient since it would have still indicated roughly east versus west to the extent that east is associated with the ascendant and west with the descendant. So I know that all of that's kind of complicated, and I actually went into this a little bit more and used, I think, better diagrams and details because I actually took some of the chart examples from Porphyry in my previous episode on the Master of the Nativity, which I think was episode 205. So if you'd like more information about this argument, I'd recommend checking out that episode and also, of course, chapter 11 of my book where I talk um, more about this and I have more specific quotations from each of the authors when they're discuss discussing it. Uh, anyway, so to make a long story short, some of the multiplicity of different house systems, one of, one of the conclusions that I would make from this is that some of the multiplicity of different house systems may have arose out of textual ambiguity of later authors like Valens and Ptolemy interpreting an early source text like Pedasiris, but coming to different conclusions about what it said, and therefore going in different technical directions based on that. 
So we can already see that that actually did happen with other techniques like the lot of fortune where some early authors introduced the lot of fortune, but there was some ambiguity about how to calculate it and when to reverse the calculation for day or night charts. And Valens actually quotes these passages from Nechepso and Petasiris on the calculation of the lot of fortune, which he says is ambiguous. He then quotes the text and he says, different authors have come to different conclusions about what this means. And then he provides his own interpretation of what he thinks it means and how you would calculate the lot of fortune and when you would reverse the calculation based on his interpretation. So we can see from that that sometimes later authors were coming to different technical conclusions about when to do certain things based on ambiguity in interpreting earlier source texts that they viewed as as authoritative. And I think that's partially what was also happening here when it comes to the House Division issue, is we can see the same exact thing happening, which is you know, two major authors living in the same century, um, both of them living in the same city in Alexandria, Egypt in the second century, Valens and Ptolemy, coming to potentially slightly different conclusions while still drawing on the same source text, which is the text of Petasiris, and attempting to follow it in putting into practice the same technique, which was the length of life technique and trying to figure out how to calculate the predominator in a chart. So uh, yeah, some of the ambiguity, some of the technical variation in the Western astrological tradition when it comes to the house division issue may not have been fully astrologers disagreeing with each other based on practical considerations, but some of the differences in later tradition may have evolved out of differing textual interpretations of earlier texts, which is kind of interesting because we we can see recurrences of that sometimes later in the tradition where um, differing interpretations of the same tech, same source text can lead to different uh, techniques forming basically from astrologers that are just reading the same book but reading it differently. All right, I want to transition at this point into the last phases of this lecture where I want to talk a little bit about some of the later attempts to synthesize the different approaches that occurred in the later parts of the Hellenistic tradition. So I've kind of established already at this point that my reconstruction is that basically You've got these three different forms of house division that are basically introduced in these three early astrological texts. You have whole sign houses that are introduced in the Hermes texts. You have equal houses in the Asclepius text. And you have potentially some form of quadrant house division being interpreted from the Nechepso Petasiris text, basically based on the length of life technique especially to the extent that it was using directional language. And if you use directional language, then the most perfect form of house division for directional concerns is quadrant houses, if that's your primary concern. So we've got these three different forms of house division in the early authors. In the later authors, we can see them occasionally struggling with and sometimes trying to reconcile these different systems, which in some instances are, are wildly different approaches. So, like I said, when it comes to Valens and Ptolemy, they often tend to use whole sign houses and talk about the houses as if they are the signs, which is usually what the astrologers do when they're using whole sign houses, because in the whole sign system, of course, 
the signs are the houses because you're just numbering the houses relative to the rising sign. So most, most of the time they're using whole sign houses for topics when we're talking about different areas of life or different, different people in the native's life, like the first house for health, the second house for money, the third house for siblings, the fourth house for parents, fifth house for children, and so on and so forth. Those are topics. Those are um, using the houses for topical concerns. But then all of a sudden, when it gets to the length of life technique, when they're trying to determine the prominence of the planets and they're trying to determine planetary activity, that is when they introduce their degree-based form of forms of house division. So at this point, Valens switches to quadrant houses for determining planetary strength, and Ptolemy evidently seems to switch to equal houses for determining planetary strength. So one interpretation is that Valens and Ptolemy were then essentially using whole sign houses for assigning topics, and they were using quadrant houses or equal houses as a secondary overlay for determining planetary strength or determining how busy or how active the planets were in different sectors of the chart. Um, using they would use the technical term chromatisticos, which means either it means both advantageous as well as uh, busy or active. Uh, so that's one possible way in terms of at least those two authors when they're dealing with the length of life technique that they seem to attempt to reconcile the systems is by using Holstein houses for topics and uh, quadrant houses for determining planetary strength. And that's one in, in terms of like modern discussions of this topic, that's one interpretation that some astrologers, like initially in the 1990s, that was initially Schmidt's argument and Schmidt's interpretation for how some of the astrologers were using the different systems with the idea that uh, whole sign houses was used for topics and quadrant houses was used for planetary strength. And there's some um, astrologers that still go in that direction or have that specific interpretation in terms of attempting to use each system for a specific role or for a specific purpose. Uh, however, things are kind of complicated. Elsewhere in the anthology, Valens returns to this issue and he seems to use the, he does actually use the degree of the meridian midheaven uh, to assign topics to different whole sign houses. And he also uses the degree of the IC to assign topics uh, in the bottom part of the chart to different whole sign houses. So using this approach, what Valens is basically doing, I think this is in like book five of the anthology, somewhere towards the middle of it when he introduces this approach, he's using Holstein houses again as his basic backdrop for different topics, but then he points out that the Meridian Midheaven can fall in different Holstein houses so that the Meridian Midheaven kind of floats around the top half of the chart and the degree of the IC flows, floats around the bottom half of the chart. And what he says is that whatever sign, whatever whole sign house the degree of the midheaven falls in, it will import what are essentially 10th house topics into whatever whole sign house it falls in so that there's a doubling up of topics in that whole sign house. So for example, if the degree of the midheaven falls in the 11th whole sign house, then it means that 
that sign will have both 10th house topics pertaining to career as well as 11th house topics pertaining to friends all in the same sign. So in that approach, it's kind of like you're, you, how, how they're using the ascendant to mark the entire sign. But in this instance, the midheaven, whatever sign it falls in, it marks the entire sign with 10th house topics, which then double up with whatever pre-existing whole sign house topics are already there. And then basically he says the same thing happens with the IC, where the IC can fall in different whole sign houses, and then there's a doubling up of topics in that sign. So in order to validate this, um, here's the actual passage from Valens. And, and one of the funny things is, again, some of the later quadrant proponents of quadrant houses, they'll sometimes cite this passage of Valens and they'll say, you know, see Valens is using quadrant houses, but they'll ignore the fact that what Valens is actually doing is he's doubling up topics and he's saying that you should use both essentially sort of like quadrant houses and whole sign houses at the same time. Although one of the things that's tricky that you have to be careful about is he doesn't say anything about calculating intermediate house cusps. So we're actually not clear here if Valens is using a full system of quadrant houses here or if what he's doing is just paying attention to the degree of the meridian midheaven and the degree of the IC and using those for topics, but then not actually calculating other intermediate house cusps besides that, because all he does is talk about the, the midheaven and the IC. So here's part of the passage. He says, uh, he gives an example basically, because this is just part of the passage, but he says, as with the ascendant in Gemini, the midheaven in Aquarius by degree, this place then possesses the relation concerning activity and reputation and children, and also that concerning a foreign land and God, since zodiacally it is found in the ninth from the ascendant. Okay, so that's really important. Let's unpack that. He says, he's giving a chart example where the ascendant is in Gemini and the degree of the midheaven. See, he qualifies it when he's talking about the exact degree of the midheaven, because otherwise when he says midheaven, usually he is referring to the 10th whole sign house. But here he says, the midheaven is in Aquarius by degree, which means that if the ascendant's in Gemini, the midheaven by degree is falling in Aquarius, which is the ninth whole sign house. So he's giving us a chart example where the midheaven has fallen in the ninth whole sign house, and he says what happens is that that sign, and interestingly, the, he seems to imply the entirety of that sign. So it's not just the range of degrees after the midheaven, but again, he's using the degree of the midheaven as like an hour marker, just like the ascendant, where the degree of the midheaven has this sort of power or this quality, just like a lot, just like the lot of fortune, where it's marking the entirety of that sign of Aquarius with its significations or with its properties, with its qualities. And he says that the entirety of Aquarius takes on 10th house significations, which he says are the relation concerning activity, and the term for activity used here is proxis, which also means occupation. So he's saying Aquarius, he says this place, Aquarius, takes on the relation concerning occupation and reputation and children. So those are the three, those are three um, topics that are associated with the 10th house, or in this instance with the midheaven in Hellenistic astrology, is occupation, reputation, and children. 
So he's saying Aquarius, because the degree of the midheaven falls there, that sign takes on 10,000 significations. But then he says, he adds an additional qualifier and he says, and also, or he says basically as well, Aquarius takes on the significations concerning, and then he gives ninth house significations, which are, he says, a foreign land and God, since remember the ninth house is the place of God and religion. And he says that's because since zodiacally or by zodiacal sign, it is found in the ninth from the ascendant. So this is really crucial and it's often overlooked, but this passage is important because since the beginning, since the 1990s, since astrologers first, since we first had the Project Hindsight translations of Valens, this has been the passage that Whole Sign House users have taken very seriously because it tells you an important piece of what you're supposed to do with the midheaven, which is that whatever sign the degree of the midheaven falls in, you have a doubling up of significations in that whole sign house, where you'll have both some 10th house significations as well as the significations of whatever whole sign house it falls in, and the justification is this passage. But it's important to understand that Valens is not just using quadrant houses here, but instead he's using the midheaven, the degree of the midheaven topically, not just for dynamic purposes, not just for determining how busy the planets are, but instead he's using it as like a horoscopic marker to designate uh, topics that are being imported into whatever whole sign house it falls in, and then there's a doubling up of topics. Uh, but interesting, he actually goes on and he says the same thing, or he extends the same principle to the degree of the IC. So he says, um, similarly also, the diameter of Aquarius, that is Leo, which is the subterraneous angle, which is the Hellenistic name for the IC, uh, possesses the relation concerning foundations, buildings, and parents, as well as that concerning God and siblings and a foreign land. So what he's doing there is he's saying that the, I, the degree of the IC falls in Leo and the IC itself imports some fourth house topics into the third whole sign house where there's a doubling up of third house and fourth house topics in that sign. So then he said, that's why he says first that in that sign there will be fourth house topics, which according to Valens are foundations, buildings, and parents, which are pretty straightforward fourth house topics. But then he also says there will be third house topics, such as again, God. Uh, so there's some religious associations with the third house in Hellenistic astrology. It's called the place of goddess normally, uh, but also siblings, which is a super um, standard third house signification. And he also says a foreign land because uh, foreign travel is one of the third house significations in Hellenistic astrology. So this is really important because you know, Valens is living in the second century, and this is one of the ways that we can see astrologers um, wrestling with this issue of the difference between whole sign houses and quadrant houses and how they were attempting to reconcile that issue. And for Valens, at least, we see this really interesting intermediate stage where in this passage, he doesn't actually calculate intermediate house cusps. So it's not actually clear that he extends this principle to, like, let's say, the cusp of the 11th house or the cusp of the 12th quadrant house or something like that. 
but instead he just seems to be applying it to the four degrees of the quadrant angles and then saying that the degree of the midheaven and the degree of the IC import 10th house and 4th house topics into whatever whole sign house they fall, but then that's kind of it. And he doesn't extend it past that. Interestingly, he's also not saying that that you find the degree of the midheaven and then you calculate a, a range of degrees after that that signify 10th house topics, but instead he's only saying that whatever sign the degree of the midheaven falls in, that it marks the entirety of that sign with 10th house topics, both in the range of degrees um, after it up until the end of the sign, as well as the range of degrees before that in the sign. So that would mean then that if the degree of the midheaven falls at, let's say, 29 degrees of Aquarius, let's say in this chart example, let's say the degree of the midheaven's at 29 degrees of Aquarius, that means the 10th house significations are being imported into the entirety of the sign of Aquarius, which would start all the way back at zero degrees of Aquarius because that's the sign that the midheaven falls in. But those 10th house significations would end at whatever, 29 degrees or 30 degrees of Aquarius at the end of that sign, so that the doubling up of significations is applied to the entirety of that sign, just like when you're calculating whole sign houses and the ascendant falls at 29 degrees of, let's say, Gemini, the, the degree of the ascendant marks the entirety of that sign, basically, all the way starting at, at zero degrees of that sign, regardless of how late the ascendant is. So we're seeing Valens using a similar logic for the degree of the midheaven and the degree of the IC, and he's using them as kind of like um, horoscopic markers, just like the lot of fortune or just like the role the ascendant plays in whole sign houses, but they can act as like floating points that move um, along the top half of the chart or the bottom half of the chart. And that's a really interesting kind of in-between position to be in, in terms of uh, using uh, whole sign houses and importing parts of quadrant house division, but not necessarily going all the way with quadrant houses and using them completely for topics by trisecting the arc between the degrees of the angles like later astrologers do. But instead, we have this interesting sort of in-between stage with Valens in the second century. All right, so that's Valens's approach. In later Hellenistic astrologers, like Rhetorius, once we get to the very end of the Hellenistic tradition, Rhetorius is the basically the latest, he's one of the latest, if not the latest, Hellenistic astrologer writing either around 500 CE or around 600 CE, depending on his dating, which is a little iffy, but we know at least he was writing somewhere within that century. Um, Rhetorius in his text, if you go through his delineation material, especially when he goes through and delineates planets and houses, Rhetorius actually has the longest chapter, I believe it's the longest chapter on delineating planets and houses that survives from the Hellenistic tradition. Uh, Rhetorius alternates between using both whole sign houses as well as quadrant houses, not just in his um, delineations of planets and houses, but he also does this in his example charts. So he gives at least one example in his text where he's calculating like the i think it's like the triplicity rulers of the sect light and he gives the planetary positions but he alternates between telling you what the whole sign house position is and telling you what the quadrant house position is 
which seems to imply that he is using both in his interpretations at the same time. So this is really important, and it's also clear in Rhetorius that he's also calculating the intermediate house cusps at this point. So we don't have this interim, this um, in-between stage like we did with Valens, where it's not clear that he's calculating the intermediate house cusps when it comes to uh, attributing topics to the quadrant houses. But by the time of Rhetorius, he clearly is calculating the intermediate house cusps, and he's using both whole sign houses and quadrant houses at the same time. Uh, Firmicus Maternus, who's also relatively late, he's living in uh, what is it like the middle of the fourth century? He's also doing something similar where he's using whole sign houses as well as equal houses at the same time. So both of them attempt to essentially use the whole sign houses together with a form of degree based form of house division simultaneously. And when you go through the chapters of theirs where they give delineations of planets and houses, they keep alternating between talking about planets by sign versus the placement of the planet by degree. And it's not always clear if they're talking about the degree-based form of house division within the context of topics or if, if like some of the earlier astrologers like Valens and Ptolemy, if they're talking about them in terms of just um, how active or how, how dynamic or busy the planet is because there's some ambiguity in the delineations. I'll show you one in just a second. I think that both Firmicus and Rhetorius, when they give their delineations of planets and houses, they seem to be drawing on the same source text. And one of the things that I do in chapter 11 of my book is I go through and I compare the passages where they do delineations of like the moon in the 10th house or the moon in the 4th house or the 7th house. And when you compare the passages of Rhetorius and, and Firmicus, you can see that their delineations are very, very similar, so that it's clear that they're drawing on the same underlying text. Um, I suspect then that the earlier source text that they're drawing on is the text of Asclepius, and that maybe that is the source text that both Firmicus and Rhetorius share in common, and that must then be the text that was using both whole sign houses as well as some degree-based form of house division at the same time but for whatever reason, Rhetorius interprets it one way and uses quadrant houses as well as whole sign houses, whereas Firmicus uses equal houses as well as whole sign houses. So it's kind of like a similar breakdown as what you find with Valens and Ptolemy, where Valens is using quadrant houses and whole sign houses, and Ptolemy is using whole sign houses and equal houses for some reason. It may just be based on different interpretations of the same source text. So. There is a question about how much the approaches advocated by Rhetorius and Firmicus represent what was happening later in the tradition, like how much this was a new development where we can see them firmly trying to use both whole sign houses and, and degree-based forms of house division at the same time and to integrate those in their delineations. How much of that was a later development that was only put in place by the end of the Hellenistic tradition versus how much uh, does this represent a development that was earlier in the tradition, perhaps going back to the Asclepius text? Unfortunately, we don't know because we just have the later delineations from Firmicus and Rhetorius, and we can see that they're similar but slightly different. We don't actually know what the original source text said because 
sadly the text of Asclepius doesn't survive, so we can't study it ourselves to figure out what it originally seems to have advocated or used. Let me give a delineation. So this is from Rhetorius when he's delineating the moon in the different houses. And this is to demonstrate his use of both, he's using both sign-based house division, whole sign houses, plus some degree-based form of house division, which is probably quadrant houses. He says, the moon chancing to be of the sect in the midheaven sign on the same spot as the angle will produce great rulers, kings, rulers of life and death. Then he goes on, he gives the second part of the delineation, and he says, chancing to be in the midheaven place only according to sign indicates those who are great in their actions and in those efforts with which they are entrusted or which they do for their own benefit and those who receive money. So what's important here is that Rhetorius is giving two, two delineations. And in the first delineation, he says the moon being of the sect in favor, so let's say the moon in a night chart, and being in the 10th whole sign house. So he says the midheaven sign, but then he qualifies it and says also, not just in the 10th whole sign house, but also on the same spot as an angle. And the Greek term used here is homokentros, which means homo meaning like same and kentros meaning angle or pivot. So it, this is like the technical term that seems he uses to refer to when a planet is on the exact degree of an angle, which in Rhetorius seems to mean on the quadrant midheaven. So he's saying when the moon is in the 10th whole sign house in a night chart, and it's not just in the 10th whole sign house, but it's exactly on the degree of the midheaven, then he predicts great things. And he says it'll produce great rulers and kings and rulers of life and death. But then in the second part of the delineation, he takes it down a notch and he says, however, if the moon is in a night chart and it's in the 10th whole sign house, but it is not on the degree of the midheaven, then it indi indicates people who are great in their actions and in efforts in which they're entrusted and they receive some money. But he basically implies that they're not going to become like kings or great rulers, or they're not going to be people who are in charge of life or death. So this is Rhetorius, and he's drawing on this earlier source text. When you look at Firmicus, he has a very similar delineation, which is how we know that they're both probably drawing on the same underlying source text, which I suspect is Asclepius. But that gives you some indication and, and explains when I say that they're trying to use both whole sign houses as well as some secondary form of house division at the same time, like quadrant houses or equal houses, this is what I mean, uh, where they're sometimes producing two different delineations where if it's just in the whole sign house, it will indicate that topic. But if it's also angular by degree at the same time, then, then the delineation becomes like amped up or becomes heightened basically. And that seems to be how they were using or how they were trying to synthesize the sign-based form of house division with the degree-based forms of house division in the later part of the Hellenistic tradition. All right, and finally, I wanted to have a quote from Antiochus and Porphyry because this is from like very early in the Hellenistic tradition, from probably the first century. The Antiochus text probably goes back to the first century CE, and Porphyry draws on it and quotes the text extensively a few centuries later. 
But when they introduce the concept of aspects, they first define the concept of aspects by sign, and then they define the concept of aspects by degree. And what's interesting about that is that throughout the Hellenistic tradition, there seems to have been this awareness that aspects that you have to take aspects into account simultaneously, both by sign and by degree, because there is this sort of like duality built into aspects where it's both. It's not one or the other, but instead it's both. It's both something that takes place by sign when two planets are, let's say, when one planet is in Leo, it is trying to a planet in Aries because both of those signs are fire signs that are masculine, and so they share something in common. But also, if the planets are, if one planet is at 15 degrees of Leo and one planet is at 15 degrees of Aries, then they also have a close degree-based aspect because they're about 120 degrees apart, which is roughly um, the geometrical configuration associated with a trine. So the point is that the Hellenistic astrologers took both sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects into account, and it wasn't necessarily like an either-or situation, but instead both of them were considered to be important. Here's the passage anyways. They say, in Porphyry he's quoting Antiochus, he says, they call the configurations of the stars towards each other bearing witness. So the term is um, epimartyreo, or epimartyria was the um, original term used for aspects, and it means witnessing or testifying. So there are the following figures. The trigon is through five intervals whenever there are three zodiacal signs between the two. The tetragon, which is the square, is through four intervals whenever there are two zodiacal signs between them. The diameter is through seven intervals whenever there are five in the middle, and the hexagon, which is the sextile, is through three intervals whenever there is one between them, one sign between them. But then he goes on, and this is the important part. He says, it is necessary to consider if the figures are perfect by degree and not only by zodiacal sign. So in the first half of the passage, he introduces aspects and he defines them based on sign-based aspects, but then he says you also have to pay attention to the degrees. Then he introduces and defines degree-based aspects and says the triangular figure is at an interval of 120 degrees, the square is at an interval of 90 degrees, the hexagon is at an interval of 60 degrees, the diameter is at an interval of 180 degrees, and then this is the final statement that's really important. He says, for often the stars are configured according to zodiacal sign, but no longer according to degree. So basically, uh, Antiochus and Porphyry were setting it up where you you can the, the concept of aspects from the very beginning was defined both by sign as well as by degree. And this is really important because you can see the astrologers at different points in the Hellenistic tradition paying attention to both and basically treating it as if once two planets are configured by sign, they're already an aspect. But the closer they get to an exact aspect by degree, the more intense the aspect was considered to be and the delineation is kind of like heightened or amped up when it's closer to an exact aspect by degree. And that's kind of similar 
honestly to what we just saw, I think, in the delineation by Rhetorius when he was contrasting the placement of a planet by whole sign house and then contrasting that with the placement of a planet both by whole sign house as well as by degree-based um, house division, which is e either equal house or quadrant houses, where remember in the first part of the delineation, it when it's both by sign and by degree, it's the most uh, sort of best or most characteristic delineation, the most powerful delineation of that placement in the 10th house. Whereas when it's just by sign, it's still a similar delineation, but it's not quite as prominent and not quite as powerful. So I suspect that that's part of the way forward here, and that's part of the answer to how the Hellenistic astrologers were conceptualizing this issue, is that it was probably very similar to the way they were using both sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects. And I think personally that just like um, as the tradition went on after the Hellenistic tradition, in some early medieval authors, they continued to define aspects uh, not just by degree, but also by sign. So for example, when you look at Abu Mashar, I was just reading the greater introduction the other day, he defines aspects both by sign and by degree, and he says that both are important to use. But as the, as the tradition continued to progress, there was a tendency to focus more and more on degree-based aspects and to forget about the importance of sign-based aspects. And I think we saw something similar happen in the Hellenistic tradition, uh, or not in the Hellenistic tradition, but with the whole sign house tradition, where in the Hellenistic tradition, they were clearly defining um, house division both in terms of whole sign houses as well as in terms of other degree-based forms of house division. But as the tradition progressed uh, after the Hellenistic tradition, they slowly lost the concept of whole sign houses, and it became just about defining houses in terms of degrees and especially in terms of quadrant houses. And I think just like the loss of the sign-based aspects was a mistake in the later tradition that the loss of whole sign houses was a mistake in the later tradition as well. Um, but we can see here how, they, how that might be useful and how some of the astrologers were attempting to reconcile those two different approaches by essentially using them both at once. All right. So what ended up happening is that um, the fall of the Roman Empire eventually, several centuries later, led to the decline of Hellenistic astrology. It's sort of, you know, the Roman Empire itself fell, and learning and literacy declined, and so there were less people who were educated and able to do things like calculate birth charts. At the same time, there was a rise in religious opposition to astrology after the success of due to the success of Christianity and the um, sort of aggressive stance that Christian the established Christian tradition had towards astrology also led to what ended up being largely successful attempts to outlaw the practice of astrology so that the environment for the practice of astrology changed and became, less hospitable towards astrologers during the later part of the Roman Empire. So by the time we get to the medieval tradition in the 8th and 9th centuries, initially whole sign house usage continued in the early medieval tradition, and we can find authors like Masha'Allah living in the late uh, 8th century and Saul ibn Bishr living in the late or sorry, early 9th century 
Um, those two authors primarily seem to have used whole sign houses due to being influenced by translations of earlier authors like Medius Valens and Dorotheus. So if you read, for example, the translation of Saul, uh, the book titled Works of Saul and Masha'Allah by Benjamin Dykes, he has this whole discussion about their use of whole sign houses and how that seems to be the primary system of house division that they were using in their texts and in their chart examples. So the early authors, because they're they're basically following the texts of authors like Dorotheus and Valens, where you can clearly see in their example charts that they're using whole sign houses as their primary system. As a result of that, the early medieval astrologers that were using those texts basically emulated Dorotheus and Valens in primarily using that approach as well. What happened um, after that is that at some point after the ninth century, there was some sort of shift that occurred towards quadrant houses where things flipped and suddenly quadrant houses became the primary form of house division within a few generations after uh, authors like Saul and Masha'Allah. So recently, I mean, as far back as the 1990s, there's been speculation, like I remember Rob Hand speculating that Masha'Allah or or that Abu Mashar may have been the reason for this switch. I'm not really clear why he thought that back in the 1990s, but recently that actually, that speculation seems to have started to um, become accurate or, or become documented as an accurate speculation due to some of the recent translations of Benjamin Dykes. So especially, uh, I would recommend going back and listening to, if you're interested in learning more about this, episode 218 of the Astrology Podcast, which is titled Abu Mashar on Solar Returns with Benjamin Dykes. And this is where I I did an interview with Ben about his new translation of the book on solar revolutions by Abu Mashar. And in this text, Ben has an in- extended introduction where he talks about this issue and he basically points out how in Abu Mashar's work on solar revolutions he uh, clearly tries to in some of the chapters use both whole sign houses and quadrant houses at the same time and he kind of alternates between the two and he tries to synthesize both of those approaches so that he's clearly aware of both approaches and he's aware that there's an issue there that he's trying to reconcile because he's inheriting techniques that sometimes have a sign-based approach, but he's also trying to use a degree-based approach at the same time. Um, But what happens uh, from what I can tell in Abu Mashar, and I think this was Ben's conclusion as well, is that when there was a conflict between Holstein houses and quadrant houses, like when Abu Mashar ran into an issue between those two approaches where there was some sort of um, way where, where they weren't working together and you had to make a choice between them, Abu Mashar seems to show a preference for quadrant houses. So I think it was this preference that Abu Mashar, this is a, a turning point in the tradition because since Abu Mashar shows a preference for quadrant houses when there's a conflict between the two, when there's a conflict between quadrant houses and the whole sign house approach, it set up sort of like a precedent so that later astrologers tended to start following the quadrant approach and prioritizing that as well. And I think that may have been what caused the shift in the tradition, because uh, what happened is that Abu Mashar ended up becoming 
the most authoritative and one of the most influential of all of the medieval astrologers after that point. And when astrology was uh, transmitted back to Europe in the 12th century, they were following a lot of Abu Mashar's work, and that may have influenced why after the 9th century there's a pretty dramatic shift towards using quadrant houses, and virtually all of the discussion at that point just becomes a question of what quadrant house system to use, and that becomes the primary approach uh, from that point forward. And knowledge of whole sign houses uh, gets lost pretty quickly within a few centuries by the time you get to the late medieval and especially the Renaissance traditions, where they're pretty much exclusively using quadrant houses at that point. And whole sign houses are just largely forgotten from that point forward up until very recently, until they were until the concept was recovered in the West in the 1980s and 1990s through the work of scholars like. Um, James Holden, Robert Schmidt, and Robert Hand. So at that point, it just becomes a question of which quadrant system to use, and a bunch of different quadrant systems are introduced during and after the medieval tradition, some of them based on just different mathematical approaches to dividing up the quadrants. Others were sometimes based on like arg textual arguments, like some of the authors were trying to figure out what system they thought Ptolemy was using, and so they introduced new quadrant systems based on their interpretation of what they, what system they thought Ptolemy used, and that sometimes generated different approaches. And basically a ton of different quadrant house systems are introduced at this point, and during different eras, different quadrant systems became more or less popular. So for a while, Alcabitius was like the most popular form of house division, and then there was a period in the Renaissance tradition where authors like Lilly were primarily using Reggio Montanus as their primary form of quadrant house system. Then in the modern period in the 20th century, Placidus became the primary form of house division, although James Holden, for example, said that he thought that the main reason that Placidus became the primary form of house division in the 20th century was because that was the only system that uh, tables of houses existed for in printed form for quite a while, so that it was the only advanced quadrant house system that any astrologers could calculate for a while, and therefore that led to just people adopting it early on in their studies without it necessarily being intrinsically the best system necessarily, but instead it was more out of necessity because that was the only quadrant system that you could calculate, and quadrant house systems had become the standard by that point in the astrological tradition. So uh, knowledge of whole sign houses was forgotten completely by that point, and the turning point seems to have been in the ninth century. But it's sort of too bad that that took place because it's clear that Abu Bashar and other authors are trying to reconcile these systems. But it seems like instead, what happened is the tradition ended up just focusing on one, and uh, the other approach. Which had been foundational up to that point, which is whole sign houses, was forgotten. All right, so to wrap up this long, what's become another long talk, I want to end this by saying that each of these three approaches to house division has its own unique symbolic significance. And I've already sort of explained this earlier, but just to reiterate, Holstein Houses focuses on the rising and culminating signs in their entirety. So it treats 
the ascendant as if it's capable of assigning topics and to designate the entirety of the rising sign as signifying certain things related to the body and the character of the native. And then the sign after that uh, has significations pertaining to wealth and finances and so on and so forth. So from a symbolic standpoint, it's treating the rising sign and the culminating signs as being symbolically significant. And that in and of itself um, astronomically has its own independent uh, value from a symbolic standpoint. Equal Houses, on the other hand, focuses on the rising and the highest degrees of the zodiac. So it's identifying the rising degree and the nonagesmal or the 90 degree point as having their own symbolic significance. And the nonagesmal, as we talked about earlier, does have its own independent astronomical significance because that is the uh, peak of the sort of zodiacal circle at any one point in time that's always exactly 90 degrees from the degree of the ascendant. And so if that's the sort of peak of the zodiacal circle, we could see why that might gain some 10th house type significations having to do with one's reputation or one's career or one's public persona or what have you. Then finally, quadrant houses focuses on uh, the rising degree, just like the just like equal houses does, but the degree of the meridian midheaven uh, demarcates the highest elevation of the planets. So it's when the planets get to their highest points in the sky, as opposed to looking at the zodiac and what the highest or uh, what the highest um, arc of the zodiac is at any one point in time, which is more what the whole sign and equal house systems are trying to do. So what you have then is a difference between what you're looking at and what you're focusing on and what makes more sense symbolically, or maybe not necessarily choosing which one makes more sense symbolically, but just recognizing that both of them are representing sort of overlapping things from a symbolic standpoint. The idea that the planet's reaching their highest elevation or the idea of the zodiacal, the arc of the zodiacal circle um, being at its highest point in some sense at the peak of the circle, uh, which is the equal house midheaven as well as the whole sign house that's culminating. You can see how both of those have some symbolic significance that's similar to the midheaven in thinking about themes of like things being at their highest point or at their peak or at their most visible, at the highest point of prominence, and so on and so forth, which are all roughly speaking like 10th house type themes. And that ultimately is the most difficult thing that's tricky about the house division issue is you can see how all three of those systems have independent, unique uh, value that is actually valuable and is actually useful from a symbolic standpoint so that it's hard to just choose between them or say that one is correct and one is not, because in reality, all three have some valuable symbolic information to convey. And that's honestly why the house division issue is so difficult, because everybody who's using and preferring a different form of house division is doing so because each of the three forms of house division does actually have some practical symbolic value. And that's why practitioners that use those different approaches know that there's something to their approach that works, and that's why they, they want other people to sort of see that and adopt that to some extent. So in my opinion, um, a synthesis of the different systems is desirable. 
uh, but I don't think anybody has successfully carried out that synthesis yet. It's not clear to me that the Hellenistic astrologers had completely accomplished a synthesis of the, the different systems. I, I think it's clear that they were moving towards that, and there was a desire to synthesize and reconcile the different systems, although there was still some ambiguity about even the Holstein houses seem to have been used as the basis of the most of the approaches, and they were all taking into account the signs as houses. There was some ambiguity about whether to use equal houses or quadrant houses as the degree-based system to use. And you seem to have different astrologers like, like Firmicus using equal houses or Rhetorius evidently using quadrant houses. So there's some different questions that we have to ask ourselves and have to address today as we attempt to reconcile these different systems and create some sort of synthesis. Uh, one of them is, should equal houses and quadrant houses just be used for dynamic purposes? So for example, let's say like whole sign houses we've established can be used for topics or different areas of life like uh, parents, children, relationships, career. But then when you add a secondary form of degree-based house division on top of that, are those degree-based forms of house division, let's say you're using equal houses or quadrant houses, also signifying topics so that there's a doubling up of topical significations, including all the intermediate house cusps? Or should the secondary form of degree-based form of house division only be used for dynamic purposes? so that the whole sign houses are indicating the topics and the degree-based forms of house division are indicating how prominent or how active the planets are within the context of those topics. So that's one of the approaches that some astrologers have taken, but then uh, for proponents, of course, of either equal houses or quadrant houses, that's not going to be a uh, reliable or, or appropriate or, or um, acceptable solution for them because they certainly already believe that the quadrant houses or the equal houses do have topical significance. So they might, uh, if you're adopting those approaches already, reject that as a possible solution. But it's, it's an approach some people take, so it's something to consider. I don't necessarily want to, and the purpose of this is not to give people the answer to these questions, but instead just to raise them as questions that you should ask yourself and I think ultimately different astrologers are going to come to different conclusions just like they did during the Hellenistic tradition where we can see sort of a multiplicity or a diversity of different approaches being used and employed. It would be nice if all of the astrologers got on the same page at some point and there was more consistency when it comes to the issue of house division in the Western astrological tradition and maybe we can achieve some degree of consistency at some point, uh, but there will probably still be some uh, variations as well, and that's all right. Um, ultimately, I think to each his own in terms of what form of house division you want to use and however you want to reconcile, to either attempt to reconcile or to not reconcile the different systems. My main thing that I've always said ever since the original whole sign house lecture that I gave that started all of this if you go back to the conclusion of that lecture, is the same thing that I'm going to say again now, which is just the important point is to choose whatever approach you're going to use to house division uh, deliberately 
and to know why you're doing it and to have a reason for doing it that's not just practical but is also conceptual and philosophical so that you have some sort of justification for why you're using one approach to house division rather than another. Um, and it's okay if part of your answer to that is practical in terms of what works best for you when looking at charts, either your own chart or the charts of friends or family or clients. That's okay as part of your justification, but you should also have some understanding of like the historical origins of your approach to house division, as well as the conceptual reasons why you prefer that approach to house division rather than something else. And I think if you do that, then whatever system you use, like I, I respect that and I have respect for your approach to house division if it's something that you've put some thought into and you have reasons why you're using it. But if your approach to house division is just that, well, that's what my teacher used, or that's what this ancient text that I read that's a few centuries old used, and therefore I've decided just to follow that approach. Um, I don't think that's necessarily uh, as reasonable or defensible as a position as what you could have. So I would encourage all astrologers to just try to think through the issue and have good reasons to use whatever approach or whatever synthesis you decide to use in your practice and advocate. All right. I think that's it uh, for this lecture, and that is my lecture on the origins of the house division issue uh, in ancient astrology. So, if you enjoyed this short, brief overview of the history of house division, and you'd like to go more in depth, or you like you'd like to understand some of the sources and see some of the different citations and footnotes and get deeper into this issue in terms of understanding it in the Hellenistic tradition, then I'd recommend checking out my book uh, titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, which was released on February 10th, 2017, and is available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble's website and just about everywhere. Uh, chapter 10 deals with is where I introduce the concept of the 12 places, and I focus especially on the treatment of the houses in authors like the Asclepius text and the Hermes text, as well as later authors like Valens and Rhetorius. And then chapter 11 is where I have the detailed 50-page uh, treatment of the house division issue where I sort of do the same treatment that I did in this lecture, except I actually go into, uh, surprisingly if you can believe it, more detail than what I did in this little workshop here. So definitely check out the book if you're interested in learning more about this topic, uh, and especially if anybody wants to uh, argue with me about any conclusions that I made in this lecture, please at least read the book and the chapter on house division first, and then I would love to have that discussion. But um, yeah, I'd like to have it based on what I wrote in the book in conjunction with what I said in this lecture, rather than just the pieces I presented in the lecture, since this was not the entire treatment if you can believe that. All right, so that's the book. Um, other than that, if you want to learn more about Hellenistic astrology, I teach a full online course with tons of video lectures like this one, although they're a little bit, in some instances, shorter, and in some other instances, longer video lectures where I go into detailed treatments about the history, philosophy, and especially the techniques of ancient astrology. It has over 100 hours of video lectures plus uh, recorded webinars and workshops and guided reading through ancient texts like Valens, where 
There's some little webinars where we went through his chart examples and talked about different things. Anyway, you can find out more information about that at courses.theastrologyschool.com or just go to theastrologyschool.com and go to courses and you can find out about the Hellenistic Astrology course. All right, so my websites are hellenisticastrology.com, which has a bunch of additional information about Hellenistic astrology and the different authors. Uh, There's also a good article there about Ptolemy's preferred form of house division as well as links to other resources. My consulting site is chrisbrennanastrologer.com. I'm not actually doing consultations at this point in time, but I do have some references to other astrologers and other resources that I could try to direct people to for learning astrology. And then also, of course, theastrologypodcast.com, which is where I have this episode as well as 200 others on different topics uh, on astrology. So for this episode of the Astrology Podcast, I wanted to give a shout out and a thanks to Patreon supporters who have been supporting the production of this episode through our page on patreon.com slash theastrologypodcast. Uh, in particular, I'd like to thank patrons Christine Stone and Nate Craddock, uh, as well as the Astrogold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and also the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. So that is it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks everybody for watching or listening, whether you're watching the video version on YouTube or listening to the audio version in your car or uh, wherever you're at. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you've learned a lot about the history and the origins of the House Division debate. This has been a long something I've been meaning to put together for a long time. It's not as comprehensive. Obviously, it was a very long, detailed lecture, and I've been meaning to put it together for a long time in order to get more of my actual reconstruction and thoughts about the house division issue recorded for the public. So if you've made it this far in the lecture and you listen to the entire thing, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to post them in the comment section below, either on the YouTube video or uh, on the astrologypodcast.com website if you're listening to the audio version. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you again next time.